0: <laughs> yeah, Jesus Christ.
1: I'm
0: guessing you either have a wrong film, or then you just pirated this from some Italian (laughs) side.
1: Uh, This is actually when James Bond says, I'm Mickey Mouse, and who would you be? (laughs) Welcome to the Flick Lab once again. So, we're looking at our last James Bond film for now, Spectre. This movie's name is Spectre, yes.
0: Yep, we are wrapping up the Bond marathon just before we head to the theatres to check out the latest one. Now ain't we, Karri? hmm Aren't we going to hit No Time to Die pretty soon here, Karri? Isn't that the whole point of the timetable, Karri?
1: That is kind of relative at this moment. It could take uh, like eight months for us to get our asses in the seats. Or more. Yep. Who knows?
0: Or more, the film has been postponed for five years.
1: Yeah. It's kind of unfortunate that we have to talk about it, but it's on everyone's lips at the moment. Corona. Coronavirus has tried to ruin this podcast. Unfortunately, uh, something has happened to our dear Tom, or more specifically to Tom's grandfather. Tom, as most of our Bond listeners may know, is... Our regular Bond expert visitor in this Bond episodes, But unfortunately, something bad happened there. We believe that uh, everything will be fine, though. But sadly, Tom is not able to make it for this episode. We wish all the best for Tom's grandfather.
0: Yeah, uh, our heartfelt wishes to Tom and his loved ones at this moment.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This had indeed nothing to do with the coronavirus, but I heard that Henrik has been taking some steps as well to fight the coronavirus in Finland?
0: Well, fight and fight. I, at my university, I do at the moment manage this small crisis response operation when it comes to the university and the small student organizations within to help the organizations and the uni to get through this episode with as little hassle and as little T- taking as few heats as possible.
1: Yeah, you hear this warm-hearted film podcaster here. You, know, you can you can support our work further by supporting us on Patreon. Wink, wink.
0: <laughs> by, by by buying stuff from Loot Crate, <laughs> or, or Loot Box, or <laughs> what 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 was it?
1: Yeah, at this time of recording, we still haven't opened our Patreon, but uh, it's on the way. Hey, I mean, I don't I don't mind if somebody wants to support this. They will be free to do so in the near future, but
0: yeah, in a podcast that last night was apparently supported by the wine industry,
1: <laughs> I think it's never going to come to that. I think we've made the solemn <laughs> promise, at least for that, that we're not going to talk about air mattresses and wines in this podcast or <laughs> what have you.
0: I, I, I don't know. I, I, I must actually confess uh, I was in, in one yearly academic party last night and I actually end up drinking as much as Bond drinks in his a- average adventure which which translates into a fuck ton a lot basically wow <laughs> like, I, I I I may have hit some wine bottles pretty hard last <laughs> night I'm still kind of recovering from from all that in, in, in Finland what kills you it's it's not corona it's the rampant alcoholism especially in the, in the podcast circles
1: god it's now like 83, 84 episodes in and then my co-host never learns. Like We record every Sunday.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> every Sunday. <laughs> I, I, I did learn enough d- during our run on, on making the podcast. E- enough, enough to, to leave the nightclub before it was 4 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: good times. I have apparently the best possible ho- holiday ideas. You know, I was planning to go to Japan in about three or four weeks. Well, that's obviously not going to happen because we don't know what's going to happen in the near future if the travel restrictions are still going to be there. And as a plan B, I had another plan. I was thinking of going to southern Italy, not too far from northern Italy, mind you, or Italy, in fact. But yeah, the biggest part of Italy that we will get tonight or for the near future will be Spectre. Well, there is this infamous statement that we could kind of start off with. Excuse me, I have to clear up my throat for this gem. Now, I'd rather slash my wrists. I'm over it at the moment. We're done. All I want to do is move on. And then Craig added a slight caveat saying this would be his view for at least a year or two. He added, I don't know what the next step is. I have no idea. Not because I'm trying to be cagey. Who the fuck knows? At the moment, we've done it. I'm not in discussion with anybody about anything. If I did another Bond movie, it would only be for the money. Said by Daniel Craig after filming Spectre. Right away after filming Spectre. And uh, I can understand his feelings uh, that some interviewer is going to harass him right after finishing the last shots. Basically, the guy is exhausted.
0: Then Craig has said the same thing basically after every single Bond film he did. If I remember correctly, the statements that uh, I'm tired of the franchise, I'm tired of of Bond, I'm tired of everything started ever since Casino Royale wrapped up.
1: Yeah, I, I guess that's the kind of English spirit that you get every now and then. The guy's quite honest, from what I've what I've seen and what Sam Mendes has commented on the character of Daniel Gregg, that he never lies. That's Really. Yeah, when,
0: when he says that he's going to quit, he's going <laughs> to quit and not come back film after film, simply because Sony throws more millions at his face.
1: Yeah, there there is that. But uh, Daniel Craig was, as a reply to this infamous comments that he made earlier, he he was paraphrasing some Mendes in one TV morning show to kind of uh, further explain what he meant by the earlier comments. Okay, here goes. Quote, If you're 200 yards away from running a marathon and someone comes running up to you and says, are you going to run another marathon? There's two words you use, and not on a morning show. It takes its toll. But now indeed, No Time to Die is coming at some point. But before we look at it, let's look at this uh, latest that is actually out. Skyfall rider John Logan is back, as well as the regular Bond rider duo Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. Also, Chase Butterworth became, as a script polisher for the project, who gave some uncredited contributions to Skyfall. And this is important later. Uh, Butterworth considered that his changes involved adding what he would like to see as a teenager and limited the scenes with Bond talking to men as, quote, Bond shoots other men he doesn't sit around chatting to them. So you put a line through that. (sighs) I'm going to have a problem with this teenager comment later on because it's quite evident in some of the scenes.
0: Also, something you kind of have to remember when visiting Spectre is that, well, everybody has has a problem with the comments relating to the film. The movie itself is kind of infamous for the fact that it came out a little time after the Sony email hacks were leaked to WikiLeaks. And from those emails, something that came pretty evident was that Sony producers were extremely worried and troubled by the film script. And more specifically, especially the third act of the movie. And some heavy rewrites and reworkings were put in order before the film was released to the theaters. So the movie we are visiting today is Kind of the product that was salvaged and saved during the process and the the script changes. So this is more definitely, this is the Sony producer approved version of whatever the mess was before.
1: I understand they were still making quite a lot of changes when the shooting was going on. Which explains a lot of the issues on on the film. I'm not sure if the actual early draft of the script is widely available i I suppose it is i haven't read it i haven't seen it
0: i I also didn't find it when i quickly tried to look it up so i also don't know what what is the original script and what were the troubling elements in it that sony got so so scared of or felt that they most definitely did not work but this is supposed like the the film you have on the DVD or or on Blu-ray disc is supposed to be the film that actually does work. Keep that in mind.
1: Yeah. Nevertheless, this is one of the most expensive films ever made, with costs running up to uh, two hundred and forty-five to two hundred and seventy-five million USD. According to some estimates, even as high as three hundred million. Somewhere there. Who's counting? And. Uh, kind of the base of this film was to be some kind of a celebration of bond uh, again i'm not sure why
0: I, I i'm not sure if this was supposed to be a celebration of bond because skyfall was supposed to be the big bond celebration film and this was just like there there is nothing to celebrate when spectre came out
1: right so like the first like- film came out in 1962 with dr no in the series and uh, in 2012, Skyfall came out. So that's like 50 years of James Bond. But, uh,
0: like... Yeah, yeah, and Skyfall already made a big deal about how, how that's the celebration film. Right. And how how the movie is, is tipping its hat to the legacy and the entire run of the franchise up until that point.
1: So who actually celebrates 53 years of James Bond? Like, come on.
0: Well, uh, apparently Sony and Sam Mendes.
1: Which comes painfully apparent in this film. (laughs) I thought we were already over with the celebrations in Die Another Day. We saw all how well that came off. And now we're doing it again. This movie is absolutely full of references to the old films. And so full as well that you have to kind of wonder, can't they... Create anything original. Okay, let's get to this insane party. I have a lot to discuss.
0: <laughs> I, I guess a lot. Everybody has a lot to discuss about this film.
1: And it's not actually a very easy film to break down, Henrik. I f- I felt that I had a lot of troubles, kind of pointing my finger to like what what are the actual keys? Where does this fall down? Why doesn't it actually work?
0: It 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 is it is it is. You're absolutely right on that one. This is. <sighs> It's kind of a, it's really kind of a fascinating case. Yeah. Because when you look at the film, it's plain as a day to you that the film doesn't work. Like it's right there in front of you in full view that the film is, is not working. That it's, that it it is in lack of a better word, it's, it's a, it's a mess. But when you try to kind of pinpoint the exact reasons why it's a mess, then it, gets actually surprisingly hard to say that it's because of this this and this you can there there are some key elements which i feel are are kind of easy to point out and this yeah. kind of a being the I, I would say the major plot twists around Blofeld are are the most obvious ones the, the most obvious features that do not do not work in the film but but that one plot twist alone does not really explain why nothing in the film works.
1: Right, it's a sum of many things. About the director for a moment, so Mendes first said no for Spectre. I remember this very well, and I was not expecting him to come back, but uh, (laughs) producers uh, got what they wanted, and uh, he later agreed to return to direct Bond as he found the long-term plans for the future of the franchise appealing in some way. Uh, Once again, I don't understand what he means by future of franchise, Appealing does he mean Spectre as like as, as Spectre or how? Why would he care about the future of the franchise because he's not going to be involved in it anyway except for Spectre.
0: And and in in what capacity did he actually see kind of a future for the franchise? Because uh, once again, once again to tie down into the whole this is a mess discourse around the film, but in a way the film yeah is it's trying to to lay the bricks for the future franchise and continuation through Spectre. And at the same time, it's kind of a closing of the book film, which kind of telegraphs to the audience that this was was it. This is the final Bond adventure you're going to get, at least from Daniel Craig.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. I think when it comes to appeals of any kind regarding Spectre, I think he found the check the most appealing. When it comes to Sam Mendes and Daniel Craig,
0: <laughs> most likely. I would, I would say that that the paycheck is kind of the key word here. For I, I would argue, to most of the cast of the film.
1: Yeah, there is some artistic love for the project. I can tell that, but sometimes it's such of a mess that I don't even understand. Like, wh- like why? Wh- what are you doing here? There's so many missed opportunities that were kind of. Would have been easily resolved if you would have done the exact opposite of what you just did.
0: Yep. Uh, you, you did remark that this is one of the most expensive films ever made. And when it comes to the love, when it comes to budget, you actually can kind of see... You, you can see the budget and you can see the love in 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 sets, yeah. in, in some of the cinematography, yeah. in locations. You can see that millions have been burned. On sets and locations and and high-class actors and $50 has has been burned on the script.
1: Spectre, the unfortunate victim of bad influences. Uh, The Dark Knight has been mentioned as such. Captain America, the Winter Soldier has been mentioned. Also Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, although it came out in the same year of Spectre. So I don't know how far that goes as far as influences, but... Do you see the parallels to Mission Impossible or Rogue Nation? I haven't seen that movie in a long time and I get all my Mission Impossibles always mixed up, but uh, yeah.
0: I, I see some parallels. No, not that obvious one. The, I would say the biggest line that you can draw between Spectre and, and Rogue Nation is the good guys by organization going against their kind of evil counterpart. type of scenario here. If, if you would take Spectre as some kind of a anti-spy, spy organization.
1: And there's some kind of a C character there as well. Like trying to destroy the organization from inside out.
0: Yeah, that too. That too. Even, even though that aspect perhaps is better done in Spectre.
1: Okay. And I feel very much that the, also Skyfall... Well, Skyfall for sure. Mirrors, The Dark Knight cinematographically and mood-wise. Skyfall is different in structure where I feel that it still, if I'm not really exactly the biggest fan of the film, I feel that it at least that it tightens the rope by the end, although transforms into a home alone at the end. But it's still something where you feel the tension as an audience and you kind of, you don't necessarily know what to expect. When it comes to Spectre, it's Kind of, you can anticipate everything that's coming next.
0: Now, Skyfall, essentially, it's the Bond film where Bond goes against a, a psychopathical master tactician. Essentially, the Joker of Bond universe.
1: Yes, uh, the character of uh, Silva, who was also, believe it or not, he was also ham-fistedly tied into the Spectre organization who... Was actually supposed to be some kind of a lone wolf, which I think made more sense because because we were living in this age that you know the, all the information is out there, and and the terrorists can use you know information age to their, to their advantage or something like this, and 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 every anybody can kind of snap and do this given some resources. But
0: yeah, and in in Silva's case, Silva's main motivation came from. This infringement with MI6 and this feeling of maternal betrayal Mm. from M's part. Silva's kind of the main plot in Skyfall was to take revenge on M for personal reasons, for being left behind by M years ago. Yeah, that kind of doesn't really tie into that well into the whole concept of Silva was just one lieutenant lieutenant in, in a bigger organization. And I, I guess everything that happened in Skyfall, which Silva said was done in person, for personal reasons, in the end was done as some kind of a 3D chess masterstroke from Spe- Spectre's behalf.
1: And essentially I feel that... Uh, Silva and uh, as well as Oberhauser Inspector, they are doing the same thing. They are playing on the weaknesses of the information age. I think uh, it's very much the same film that he's making, but uh,
0: albeit
1: a weaker one.
0: It, it deals with the same core problem. They they take a different approach to the problem in, in, in Skyfall. The information age is problem because everybody can get information and then leak it out to the public and control the flow of the information. Like I can steal the secrets and then post them on YouTube or sell them to the a hostile government. Mm. And in Spectre, it's still the same core problem, but here just the problem is more the more in the way of. Immoral government can take and steal a private citizen's personal information and control that citizen this way. And how far in the end kind of the trail of breadcrumbs can go. Like who is the final kind of a king figure of all, all the gathered information and how much power does that, ma- that person hold through all the information that he can acquire.
1: Sam Mendes, who is known, of course, uh, apart from Skyfall and Spectre of 1917, that he just recently directed and wrote to Perdition, where, uh, yeah, he was also working with Daniel Craig on that one. So they have some collaboration history. Anything else from Sam Mendes that
0: we might have missed? When it comes to Sam Mendes's director career, I, I would say the most you could get get out of it, podcast-wise, would have been cracking all the jokes about how the dude who made American Beauty is now trying to make an action film, except that <laughs> Sam Mendes also made Skyfall and actually proved that he can make an action film, making all those jokes kind of worthless. <laughs> but so- something you can see in, in Spectre is, is kind of the port franchise also trying to build up its, its cinematic universe. I, I get very yeah. heavy... Marvel made it work. Mm. We almost copy it vibes. When I when I look at the the kind of kind of the groundwork that Spectre tries to lay out.
1: Absolutely, this is a hundred percent, hundred percent there trying to imitate the trend. Here it's happening in a well, you will see in a quite forced way. I would argue.
0: Yeah, that it, it kind of is is a problematic when you have made a a huge ton of films, or at least three beforehand, they all been an individual and separate from each other. And then on the fourth film, you decide that no, we are going to use the, all, all the movies to build up a universe. Right. And that kind of, that
1: kind of changes the whole way that you look at the films from the past. It's kind of like uh, some Halloween film makes ex- a con later on in the, f- in the series. <laughs> and something happens to a film like Halloween H2O in a way. Uh, and I was actually very much looking for the Daniel Craig films to get out of that, that franchising universe thing. Just make, just get back to the basics where you were in the beginning and where you've been for the most of the Bond runs. And just stop making sequels and make individual great films that can stand on, on their own without any baggage or history from the past. Just like it always was. But no, there were... Also rumors that Christopher Nolan would have been directing this film, but it, but he turned Spectre down to make Interstellar. And this, despite his quote of something something, deep love for the franchise. I don't know. Interstellar. You, you, well, these are both not very good
0: movies, so... You well, Interstellar still is a better film than Spectre. Yeah, might be. Like, it's, it's, it's still quite enjoyable sci-fi yarn. Even though... Uh, After all all, all the hard science that went into interstellar, I I (laughs) guess, Nolan found the undeniable proof that love conquers all. (laughs) And and bends time and space.
1: (laughs) That it did. Before we dive in, let's still talk about Hoyt van Hoytema. He is now the, the DP, or the Director of Photography for Spectre, known also for... Let en right komma in, or let the right one in. This uh, teenage coming-of-age, what have you, vampire horror drama from Sweden, which we watched on one of those cohen festivals that I organized. I have no recollection of the film. I remember it had some great cinematography, indeed. That's about it. And he has also done At Astra, Interstellar, Dunkirk.
0: Yeah, he's kind of a, a, a I would say go-to. Cinematographers for Christopher Nolan. Nolan really likes to work with that dude. Don't and you. I I kind of can see why. I, I do think that that Hoitama's style works well with uh, kind of this also a bit lagonistic storytelling that Nolan himself prefers. Here it comes. Would it be seen by a zine? I guess we really have to reach the point eventually.
1: Who knows? Who knows? Might as well get the hell out of Dodge and build my own crime syndicate. Uh, yeah, let, let,
0: let's hit the scene by scene while the corona pandemic is still going strong. Because it's kind of a feeling that we we deal with Spectre amidst a global healthcare crisis.
1: I heard that the virus might be like the essential part of the no time to die story. Would have been kind of an unfortunate theme for the times. But let the spectral analysis begin. Okay. Once again, we have this drunken assassin who sees several gun barrels at one time as they go on the screen to the right side. And just when he gets focused and tries to follow you know, Bond, but he gets killed for the 22nd time or what have you at this point, so you never start to play music during the MGM logos and other logos before the gun barrel. This is... You just don't. You keep the audiences on their feet and the gun barrel is the thing that is supposed to be breaking the silence and bring the adrenaline pumping. So why why change that? And what's, what's with this lazy design of the gun barrel like? Where did all the 3D effects go from the Pierce Brosnan era? Why is it... Flat like some kind of a cardboard on the right side and I suppose on the left side as well. Why is it made to look so mechanical and forced? Let's just get this over with type of gun barrel. Why is it the same kind of blood that you have in Casino Royale? Which really isn't that impressive anyway. And the blood runs down really quickly. The barrel doesn't even shake from left to right when the guy shoots into the barrel. The dot doesn't open the scene.
0: Why? Why? The biggest guess would be that what the film is trying to do is, I don't know, maybe play om- homage to the to the first gun battles.
1: It just feels lazy to me. Uh, this is followed by an on-screen text titles, uh, which uh, says that the dead are alive. Why? I don't think it serves any purpose here. Like it was pointed by many people, it's as corny or tacky or useless as... Putting something in the beginning of, say, Moonraker, the, the, we're traveling to the moon, It would see, uh, you, you would see that text on the screen. What kind of a purpose does it give to you? I think it's pointless.
0: Essentially, since the film itself opens into the day of the dead, which is precisely actually the, the same goddamn situation. Like, it's a celebration mm-hmm. for the day when the dead can come from, from the afterlife and visit their loved ones. In, in this world.
1: Right, and I think at the same time it's a nice little reference to the fact that Oberhauser has been supposedly dead for the last 20 years and the, the past of James Bond is coming to haunt him in the way of the organization's specter. But still, I think it would have been effect, more effective if you just opened to the Day of the Dead and that's it. But this whole Day of the Dead is most likely coming from inspiration from Live and Let Die. So we're starting with the references basically already. Because in Live and Let Die you have this this uh, funeral for the dead people from, is it Jamaica or what? And they have this tradition that it's going to be a little bit happier funeral than what we have been gotten used to here in, for example, Finland or Poland or Europe. We have a very nice tracking shot. It begins from one of these skeletons, then gives like a wide uh, open view of the street and follows... One guy dressed in white as he goes along to the opposite direction to the rest of the crowd. And then the camera pans to the direction of somebody wearing a skeleton suit once again with this beautiful lady next to him. More than thousands of extras were used for this scene. Long scene will take, but not as long as you might think. There's at least two cuts or three cuts when they enter the building. That's at least one. Uh, When it goes to the poster... Uh, in the image, and then when Bond exits the building. And uh, I'm not sure if you can really even tell that they're there, even if when you start to look at them and you know that they're there, they're really smoothly cut. Skyfall cues are all over the soundtrack as well. There's also an interesting approach where Thomas Newman, the composer, was writing music for this film before he even got the actual film because normally how it goes you get the finished cut and then you start composing for that cut but it wasn't fully the case here. Seems like uh, there has been a lot of rush involved in the project in many levels. This kind of a long tracking that we see in this scene it's kind of a pre-something 1917 because of course in the film 1917 Sam Mendes goes full crazy on this and it. Kind of looks like a entire one long take, the entire film. Maybe you could see there are like two points where the kind of the storytelling or, or the time cuts and then you continue later. But yeah, then there is the Mexican color correction cliche. Like, of course, Henrik, since we are in Mexico, we're going to have this dry heat feeling with this very yellowish tinted picture. And you see it in TV series, you see it everywhere in pop culture, on the film. Mexico is always apparently shown in this way. Also, I remember in X-Files, and to the point where it was starting to be kind of annoying. But the drumming music by Thomas Newman in this opening scene is excellent. I really love how this movie starts with the music. I really love the horns that start playing when James Bond starts to walk on the Edge of the building, looking cool as hell in his Tom Ford suit and what have you. That is my favorite part of the film.
0: The, the o- opening all together is kind of the best part of the movie. And yeah. the, the sequence that, at least to me, looks like the one that they put most work and most, most thought into.
1: Yeah, yeah they, they definitely get adrenaline pumping in the opening scene. Of the pre-title sequence, my problem is only that it's not quite as good as they were hyping it.
0: No, um, there, there are there are things that work in in the opening, and then there are things that don't work. In my opinion, what mostly doesn't work is is the action and the the kind of the bigger action set pieces.
1: Yeah, one of my problem is uh, problems is the upcoming helicopter scene. But let's talk about that in a moment.
0: Oh boy.
1: Uh, yeah. By the way, Henrik, like random, confusing question for you. Which political figure does NL Craig remind you of the most?
0: I actually don't know. Don't follow political figures nearly enough to make any callbacks. Vladimir Putin? oh yep. now that you mentioned.
1: Yeah, I think this reference has been made before somewhere. So Ponto is is on the rooftop and the crowd just behind this small wall and listens on the discussion, which is in Italian. Welcome, Signor Schiara. When do we blow up the stadium? And then I visit the Pale King, and they drink to death. Bottoms up, Bond says, and then somebody spots Bond, and Bond shoots a couple of guys and then shoots into the briefcase, which sets out a huge explosion. Most apparently the, the suitcase where the bomb was located and there is your compulsory explosion. Oh boy. So we're once again exploding buildings. I'm sorry, I, I understand this is an action film, and this is how you basically do action films nowadays, but we're like, what, four or five minutes into the film, and we're already exploding a building. And it's basically the same thing that happened in Casino Royale. It's coming down. Now it's destroying the, the adjacent building, and <sighs> there's so much CGI going on.
0: I too kind of had had the, had a problem with with the building explosions in, yeah. in Spectre. I they didn't bother me in, in Casino Royale, where I felt that they were still kind of, they were still done rather re- realistically. And the, when the explosions happened, the Bond's superhuman qualities were not so much in your face. But in in here, you once again you you get the more hokey action movie Bond, where Bond is running away from explosions and running away from collapses and stuff like that. And basically the whole sequence to me rings very much like the sinking building in in Venice in the last minutes of, of Casino Royale.
1: Yeah, I it, it feels like a complete callback to that, even if it wasn't intentional at all. So now Bond, of course, falls through the crack of the uh, of the building and then conveniently lands on a sofa. Now, I give credit for this finding for a YouTube channel called Films and Stuff, where they pointed out to a Pixar storytelling rule, which is coincidences to get characters into trouble are great, but coincidences to get them out of it are cheating. And that's what happens with the sofa.
0: I don't know. I... I actually do think that the sofa is one of the best, best things of the film. Mm. And, and but, like not, not the sofa itself, but Daniel Craig makes the sofa work because when, when Bone finally lands on the sofa, the expression on Craig's face also is kind of a, he has this, well, how the fuck did that happen? A look on his face. And I, I think that's really what makes the, the whole whole scene work.
1: Yeah, of course it's meant meant for comedic value and in that way it works. But uh, I thought it was a bit hokey. It's hard to explain.
0: I, I appreciated a lot the fact that they, they did make the notion that even Bond himself doesn't believe what just happened. And uh, that was something mm. that I actually ended up missing for the rest of the film. Where Bond goes through similar type of situations... But in those cases, now Bond just believes it and it somehow makes complete sense to him that this is how he gets away from this situation and that situation.
1: Right, 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 right. This is one of the key differences that I feel with Skyfall and Spectre. While in Skyfall, it was really smartly developed from the beginning where you have Bond who falls off the train, then gets off the MI6 services, and has kind of lost his edge, is out of shape, all of that. Then he tries to get back into service, and he's struggling with that. And we emphasize with him, we, we see why we, kind of, we are afraid on his behalf, even though we know it's James Bond, it's going to be fine. We're all right, but it, There's this built extra tension in the storytelling, because we don't know exactly what to expect, because he's not in the top form. Whereas Inspector, he's back to Superman. Yeah. plane fight. So uh, one interesting point would be why are they lifting off if Bond is on board? But they do. And uh, I keep wondering why people think this pre-title sequence is that good. Like it's it's supposed to be one of the best in the franchise. Come on. They definitely...
0: Uh, I, I don't understand that either.
1: Right? Like they definitely marketed it, it as such. And they do a lot of these things you know you know we have Monica Bellucci we have a helicopter fight which which we have had in you know, like five Bond movies okay not exactly I will get into the details but Spectre's action scene problem is that for some reason look, none of these action scenes really get my adrenaline flowing whereas in Skyfall it was working better at least way
0: better I, 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 would, uh, I, I would kind of uh, make the case that why Spectre fumbles its action is that it takes the action back into to the superhuman superhero spy action set pieces. And for some reason, Daniel Craig can, kind of a, can't bring out that feeling that, that Bone feels that this is a dangerous situation. Mm. Like, like the stoic nature that, that has been the calling card of Daniel Craig's Bond in in Spectre it actually turns against this character and I I would say that why that is is because Inspector Bond ends up in with this outlandishly dangerous and hectic action situations like the helicopter fight where the helicopter starts to make goddamn somersaults and barrel rolls and god knows what and your bond essentially is having a fist fight in a helicopter that could crash very easily. This is still in the middle of city center where they are hovering above, of and where he, you know, just one badly landing punch could just you know throw him off the helicopter into a free fall and make him to to splatter on the ground. And when you have those kind of action moments, it kind of turns against the aim of getting audiences to feel the action and feel the threat when your main character just, you know, keeps his cool the entire time and in no moment expresses that this is somehow a threatening situation to him.
1: Right. And in addition, I feel that the Daniel Craig's James Bond might be the most troubled or he has had the m- most misdirecting out of all the James Bond Actors, for example, in Casino Royale, I think you have the perfect balance of of humor and the toughness in a way of Dalton. In a quantum in Quantum of Solace, it's more like a complete head-on revenge mission with very limited humor, maybe in a License to Kill way, but to a point where I feel that it's starting to not even really be a James Bond movie and it's losing a lot of the things that they use in the franchise to make it feel like James Bond which you could then argue probably that it would be either a bad or a good case. To deviate from that I think Skyfall got back on the tracks and now again Spectre uh, it's never the fault of Daniel Craig I feel, it's just misdirecting. In Spectre you have the Superman element for James Bond's character and I also feel that uh, James Bond Uh, Daniel Craig is trying to play James Bond as as some kind of a very cool character. And now he's developed into this full agent that he has been growing into in the last three movies. Now he's proper, proper James Bond, fully in the character, which means that Daniel Craig has brought into his character even more of this assertiveness and coolness, which unfortunately on screen, I feel, just comes off as I'm bored. I don't want to be here. And I don't think that's what he's showing on the screen, and,
0: and that's kind of also my main question when it comes to Spectre and Daniel Craig, because that's exactly the reading I got from from Craig when watching Spectre, that the feeling that the dude just doesn't give a fuck at this point, that he's here just you know to appear on the scenes and cash in the paycheck, and I'm I'm not sure if if that's if that's just poor direction from Sam Mendes's part and if that's just a misguided attempt to kind of from Craig to, to have the have the character kind of grow and, and build up his bond and this is just gonna be you know a result from continuation of how Bond has been dead and what Bond has gone through in the previous films. And if if it just comes off wrong in the finished film or is the case really that Daniel Craig really just doesn't want to be here.
1: Yeah, I feel that there's a lot of script elements that make him feel kind of disgruntled, disillusioned with this world. Like, I don't give a shit in a character way. And it's also part of his kind of masculinity act as James Bond. There are parts of dialogue. A lot of the jokes indicate that, for example... That all sounds lovely. And I think it's just, just this guy is so past the bureaucratic bullshit. He doesn't care.
0: So, something that really does not help Daniel Craig here at all is the fact that the film itself is lazy. Yeah. Like like somebody is really lacking off behind the screen. And once again, you say that, it, that it's not Craig, that Craig still works hard. And tries to give out his best here. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure, sure either. And it's it's hard to pinpoint. Like when you look at the film, you you notice it's it's plain plain as a day that someone doesn't care. So, someone is doing the bare minimum effort here to get the film done. But it's kind of a hard to pinpoint exactly who that person is. Is it Greg? Is it is it Sam Mendes? Is it this script writer. That the, the scriptwriter at least doesn't give a shit. And is it's just, you know, getting you from plot point to plot point in a fastest way possible and trying to wrap up the entire film as or, or the story as fast as possible. But is it is it the production company? Is, is there some forced editing going on? That we are not aware of.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure about that fast as possible either. Because this is one of the longest James Bond films ever. Running for it's, 2 hours, it, 20 it, minutes plus.
0: It's one of the longest. I, I give it that one. But one, once again, one, once we hit the infamous third act. Yeah. You really start to notice that it it's just like something happens. And the film just, you know, decides that. Okay, we are fun down with the build-up and now we just quickly wrap it all up. <sighs> Actually, you know, I
1: kind of like Spectre for the first half. But the second half, something happens, as you said. Somewhere around the Italy parts, it just collapses.
0: There there is a there's a possibilities in, in Spectre yeah. during the first half. And then it it reaches the point where, where you just start to notice that at this point this is a lost cause. And from that point onwards, you just see the whole house of cards just slowly collapsing under its own weight. You already see the problems in, in the opening scene, in the helicopter fight in the Mexico. That's, that's when, when I first time saw the film. That's the first hint I got that this is going to be a, ro- a rocky ride and we might be in trouble here. But I, I still was kind of like, no, maybe the film boost it off. Who knows? There's possibilities. But then in Italy, there is actually, there is an exact plot point that, can, uh, that I can point to you. Where I finally noticed that whatever is going to happen with the film, it is beyond help. Like from this point onwards, this is not going to get any better. This is just going to be a downhill slope.
1: Did you notice that something might be off when you were watching the helicopter scene? Was that in the theaters or now on the second viewing?
0: It, it was already in theaters in my first experience with the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Henrik, what is that? What is it too much too soon? We have already destroyed a fucking building and now we're in a helicopter having these loops. Is it too much? Is it... Uh...
0: It's, it, it for me, it was two things. That happened. That the first one was that it was like you said, it was too much, too soon. Mm. And at the same time, I noticed that I wasn't feeling it. And when I started to ask myself why, why is th- this not engaging at all? I noticed that it's it, it comes down with Craig, and it comes down with the direction, it comes down to cinematography. Like, you, you have a stoic actor, you have a stoic direction, and you have a stoic cinematography going on all at once. And all that gives to you, it, it telegraphs to you that Bond does not feel he, that he's in danger when when the action happens. He just reacts to what happens. Like, like the building collapse, run away, land on sofa. That's the only time that Bond actually ha- has this well, fuck me, situation. And then the fa- helicopter fights and Bond almost gets thrown out. The helicopter almost crashes. It steers uh, out, out of control. And the entire time, you're kind of a being signaled that Bond isn't feeling that he's in danger. And it, it's it's, kind of, it's it's those two things that, to me, really makes it so that the action just doesn't get to me and in the end as the film goes on and you get more and more of these situations it, in the end it starts to to smell almost like 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 desperation
1: like you said it you feel like the lack of stakes here like i said in skyfall at least you have this aspect that the agent is coming back to join mi6 and there is this risk that he might not be able to be the best shot in the world anymore. So this might affect on his way of carrying on the mission. Whereas I feel that in Spectre, the character of James Bond doesn't have any kind of arc whatsoever. I mean, this was this was normal in the old films, but I expect something a little bit different in Daniel Craig's films, where, you know, Casino Royale, we, we establish the character as something different, something more of a human. Something is at, on, at stake here. And Spectre does the opposite.
0: A- at least in Skyfall... Bond showed to you that, that he felt hurt. He felt betrayed. He was sad. He was angry. He was. He was at times shocked by Silva's action and, and the and the cruelness that Silva showed. And in Inspector you get the exact kind of the exact same situations. You have the organization kind of not going with you, being against you. You, you get the red tape you get the rest, uh, restrictions Bond gets the feeling that he's being thrown out and left behind by mi6 and you get kind of this careless misusage of human life from the bad guys and Bond doesn't really react to any of that or he doesn't he doesn't show that any of that has any kind of a emotional impact on him
1: yeah. There's so many things, so many doors to open throughout this film regarding that point. But uh, just to get back to the helicopter, this is definitely not the first time that Bond struggles in a helicopter or a plane, which is uh, Schmidt belkov blombo 105, if somebody's interested. but The first rotorcraft that could perform these aerobatic maneuvers, such as inverted loops. Well, if you want to see it there, you can see that this could be kind of... <laughs> doing the man with the golden gun car flip, in a way, as a reference. There is one of those shots. Maybe that's putting it a little bit too far, but I got some serious flashbacks of For Your Eyes Only, though in For Your Eyes Only, James Bond is more battling with the out-of-control holi- helicopter, not any bad guys inside the helicopter. But nevertheless, he's in outside of the helicopter struggling, just like here.
0: And that, 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 that film also has... A bad guy controlling helicopter.
1: Yeah, yeah, but uh, not fighting with...
0: In, in there it's remote and there, in, in here it's, well, the pilot itself yeah. is one of the bad guys.
1: Uh, I really, really, really don't understand why James Bond franchise repeats this. Same kind of vehicles in so many movies, same locations. Like, James Bond has been in Rome at least 256 times. I mean, there's so many locations where you could shoot, but they... I think they take their favorite holiday destinations. The producers, I think that's what it they points
0: are them to. Also, something that mm-hmm. did have an effect a lot on on the shooting locations of this of Spectre, were the tax cuts that the countries were willing to give to you. Yeah,
1: yeah, this of course <laughs> play a role, and costs in general, as we remember. Moonraker, the whole production was moved to France because, well, there were some serious issues with the UK tax laws and the the amounts that they would have paid for making Moonraker in the UK would have been quite astronomical compared to France, so that made perfect sense. But yeah, during this Mexico shoot, Craig also went to New York to have the minor knee surgery and some shots of Mexico were done with stunt doubles and Craig's face was digitally pasted in. But yeah, the bad guys have been thrown out of the helicopter. Bond smirks to himself, looks at the ring of Spectre with the octopus on it. We start the title sequence with the octopus ring and end the title scene with the octopus ring.
0: Yeah. now the ring that Bond makes sure he, he snatches from the bad guy, even though Bond really doesn't have a faintest idea of what's the importance of the ring at this point.
1: Right, right, right. I thought it was a bit weird. But hey, you know, maybe it was his memo- memento of the skill. Just smirking to his, himself that body count is going up.
0: Yeah, or maybe that was the only thing that, you know, he I- anymore could have. As a- a- any kind of a clue, evidence, ever ever since he throws everybody else off, off the helicopter and, and kills everybody in in the collapsing building and... <sighs> Like, you, you you can make the argument that Bond kept on holding the ring simply because he hoped that it would have some importance in the story later on. Like, may, he was hoping that maybe he could use it as a clue at some point. But, w- once again, Bond seeing all this trouble to just to snatch the ring off. It's, it's g- kind of a like, why do you care so much, Bond? Because at this point, all that Bond has... Going on for him is just one cryptic DVD message from M telling him to go to Mexico, and that's it. Mm,
1: yeah. Well, so the title sequence, once again done by Daniel Kleinman, as all of them since GoldenEye. Daniel Kleinman, who was working with the company called Framestar Company to bring his vision to life here, there's a lot of digital visual effects companies working on this movie there's industrial light and magic double negative moving picture company cinestith and peerless and uh, mostly which is great they were going with the practical effects ahead inspector but just to give like digital touch ups to you know some particles flying from helicopter or in any case just advance certain scenes to make it look more pretty here we have the whiny falsetto ballet of Sam Smith that doesn't fit with the skull imagery and is the replacement song to uh, something that Radiohead already wrote for this film. Have you heard the Radiohead song Spectre? Nope. Wow, you, I think you should really listen to it. I, it's... Uh, the, I really like it. I really like it. I understand it's really alternative music that you can expect from Radiohead. Not very radio-friendly, I guess. So it it was, was purely, I think, like a marketing decision to push Radiohead aside. The story goes Radiohead actually had a song from their something that they had recorded before. And they offered this for the James Bond people. They said no. Then they decided between their extremely already hectic recording schedule when they were working on their new album. That, okay, hey, we are going to write a new song from the scratch. Let's call it Spectre. And uh, they also said no to that. And it was rejected, according to some reports, as being too melancholy. <laughs> and Radiohead had something to say about that. Quote, that fucking James Bond movie threw us a massive curveball, said Nigel godrich it was a real waste of energy we stopped doing what we were doing and had to concentrate on that for a while since we were told it was something that was going to come to fruition i haven't seen the movie and i think they ended up with something more suitable for it but in terms of making a moon-shaped pool their album it caused a stop right when we were in the middle of it so sam smith your thoughts
0: i really hate it <laughs> like I don't, I don't. I. I. I'm not completely against the openings, the opening of the film. Like I do like the whole octopus tentacle hentai motif, even though that that might be my own personal preferences. I, I don't know. Stems from my porn consumption or something <laughs> like that. But but I do like the the octopus imagery. In, in the opening credits. But that's about it. That's the only thing that I actually do like. The, the, the credits themselves. Are really lazy. Like it's it's essentially. It's it's, it's scenes and clips. From the film kind of recreated. Throwing tentacles. Have a switch. Into a thing. Now point and lady are. Falling from the sky. Type of situation. And the Sam Smith. Song. People actually defend writing on the wall by making the accusation that if you don't like the song, it's simply because you are homophobic and you don't like Sam Smith because he's uh he's he's homosexual. But you you know, Smith's sexual preferences aside, I can't stand the song and I can't stand Smith's singing of the song yeah and i i I can't fucking understand what the hell that the song actually has to do with the film itself like like like, for for example they take the chorus of the song uh how do i live how do i breathe when you're not here i'm suffocating i want to feel love run through my blood tell me is this where i give it all up for you i would risk it all which essentially is is kind of kind of a like like a love song thing, like telling about your passion towards another person. Without you, I'm suffocating. I wanna feel love, and it's it's kind of like a question: the love to towards who? Really, the random lady that Bond meets in mm-hmm. halfway through the film, which kinda is just you know your random. I, I get sex from here, female Bond girl, like there has been in every single goddamn film up, up until this point. <sighs> like, this film's Bond girl is not the love of Bond's life. That was Vesper in, in Casino Royale. That was supposed to be the that one woman to whom Bond could have sacrificed his life as a super spy. And when, when it comes to... When it comes to Spectre, I I don't feel the chemistry. I I don't see the connection. I really don't don't understand why this would be the lady that for who Bond would would be willing to risk it all.
1: Yeah, this is a, a general criticism of the so-called relationship in the film. That it's way too manufactured, way too unbelievable and so ham-fistedly developed that everybody's just laughing when some romantic is happening because nobody buys it.
0: Yeah, the actors don't really deliver it. Like, like nothing that the actors do actually says to the audience that these two characters care about each other. It's just, you know, that they are, po- they, they are both ice cold. Right, right, right. Throughout the movie. And then you, at the final moments... All of a sudden, it's the love story of the ages.
1: This is something that happened in Quantum of Solace. You have two actors, lead actors, the woman and Bond. They're both ice cold. They don't even go to bed in that film or have really anything going on. And uh, I feel it could play exactly the same way here. And I was kind of expecting that. You get these reactions from Swan that, no, I'm not going to seek for Solace from my dead daddy, from your arms, or something like that. Yeah, I was expecting that to be like that, that it's going to be completely platonic between them. Alas, but we will get to that later.
0: This is kind of a Skyfall romance situation also in that, in the note that, like in Quantum, also here in Spectre, the whole... Whole chemistry and the whole relationship between the two characters starts from them essentially hating and just wanting to use each other. Like Bond seeks in Inspector Bond seeks out Swan simply because he ne- needs the next lead. That that's the whole motivation for Bond starting to operate with Swan. I need to find Le American. And Swan in return hates Bond for feeling that Bond is is to be be in fault for the bad guys finding Swan and putting her life on the line. That that's where the relationship starts. And then the film just kind of tries to convince to you that they somehow find the common note and start to become affectionate towards each other.
1: Yeah. When it comes to this uh, whole title sequence, I feel that it, it's too 3 three-dimensional. If you think about the beginnings of the James Bond title sequences, and I've said, it, said this before, I really like that they have this 2D aspect to them. And there's different ways that you can do uh, cinematography. If you're doing a cartoon, you want it to have a certain kind of a 2D appeal to uh, the perspective. And that's the same reason, I guess, why I, I like the old cartoons so much as I do. For example, something like the classic H. Disney, like The the, the Lion King or Bambi or whatever you, you have on the plate. And that's the kind of uh, appeal that I remember from the old James Bond films. And that's what I'm not finding anymore in this Daniel Kleinman uh, title sequences. Apart from something like Casino Royale, it's there. It has this card theme. It's very. It looks like it. It has been painted or drawn.
0: Uh, something you also don't find in, in Spectre's opening credit sequence is callbacks to Quantum of Solace, which also becomes kind of a running theme in the film.
1: You're right. Avoiding green everywhere.
0: As as much as you humanly can. Yeah. And that's but, like. As the film goes on, that becomes, it it, it it even reaches a point of being ridiculous.
1: Which is something you really shouldn't have done. I mean, if, if if you're going to use something, you could have used Green, you could have used Le Chiffre, you could have used this uh, Oberhauser dude. But uh, Silva, who really doesn't... Uh, you don't even, as an audience, feel that he was ever part of Spectre. But Green, obviously, could have been easily fit into that mold.
0: Yeah, and it, it kind of... A, like, the, the length the film goes, in order to make the audience forget that Quantum of Solace ever happened, at the same time as it's playing this... this kind of a calling back to the pre- previous movie's game, it comes, or it turns out to be really ironic when you actually see the quality of Spectre.
1: Exactly. Now it's, it's kind of the same say. case for Spectre as Quantum
0: of Solace now. I, I, w- I would say it's, for Spectre, it's even worse. L- like when, when Spectre came out, <sighs> outside of maybe me, the whole world agreed that Quantum of Solace was essentially a train wreck. I do agree that it's it used to be Greg's worst porn film. I, I didn't hate it as much as everybody else, but the common consensus was that Quantum of Solace didn't work and it was hot garbage. So I, I do get that Spectre does me, wants the audience to forget Quantum of Solace, but oh boy, it would have worked better if Spectre would have been a better film.
1: You know, these audio description tracks on the Blu-rays nowadays or maybe also DVDs where you have this guy telling what is happening on the screen for the people who have a vision impairment. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a nice feature. Also, you can kind of build your vocabulary if you're just listening to it, even if you see normally. There was this part during this title sequence, a sequence that kind of made me laugh. Quote, the octopus tentacles wrap around a nude female figure. And Ray finds us M. <laughs> 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 that would be some disturbing imagery.
0: Altogether, all uh, octopus tentacles rubbing around a nude female body is... is I, I would say that that is something that the Japanese has forever tarnished for the for I, I, entire world. So maybe not use that image <laughs> ever <laughs> like... <laughs> Cross that one out. So, so, Sam Mendes for the next film, I whatever it's gonna be, you know it, 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 in the in the planning meeting, please cross out the part which has nude female body and octopus tentacles. <laughs> you you don't wanna make be making those connections. Or naked rave finds. Or that either. All, all together, nakedness and octopus tentacles. That's a no no direction.
1: We get to Ray Fine's office as he's playing M. We were just discussing Ray Fine's a lot in the Coriolanus episode. If you haven't listened to that yet, uh, I heavily suggest that you do. Merger with MI5 is about to take place, of course, and uh, Bond is grounded from all operations indefinitely. I get this Goldfinger vibes from this. It's kind of a similar office discussion as you have after the Goldfinger incident at the pool area, Max. Danby is C. Why does Bond call him C from the beginning? I have no idea. But then later on, as the story progresses, everybody's calling him C. So I guess it kind of catched on. British intelligence is to be gotten out of the Dark Ages. And Bond is just like, that all sounds lovely. Weird dialogue. Like, weird. Really? W- what What is this? Like, it lacks punch, don't you think? What? Why
0: it, it kind of uh, kind of lacks punch. It's also kind of lacks direction. Mm-hmm. Because the British intelligence in Bond films altogether, it, it's never been in the dark ages. But Bond films make the case that British intelligence altogether is is kind of kind of highly advanced, very high tech. They have God knows what surveillance and uh, tracking applications and softwares. They, they have the nano-machines to track down the operatives. had already they, they implanted the tracking chip on Bond already in Casino Royale. So what's the famous Dark Ages except using actual human assassins instead of drone strikes?
1: Well, it's once again the same thing, I think what happens with the, like James Bond being trying to be current and his character being constantly reminded how the world has moved on and Europe has been this happens in skyfall, like moneypenny even makes some kind of a point about maybe this old dog can learn a few new tricks or what was it during the barber scene then inspector it's kind of like we're all about technology and you're this. This old tool out of the box, and let's see how this goes. Kind of like Skyfall, and then in no time to die trailer, it's again. Like, the world has moved on, Commander. How does it move on? So goddamn much every time.
0: In in Skyfall, and um, well, uh, at least in, in in the in the trailer of No Time to Die, it still makes sense because in in Skyfall, Bond had been out of active service, and he had been boozing on for some time. He was, I guess, somewhat washed out drunk when he once again rejoined M to take down, down Silva. And in what I've gathered from the two times I've checked out the trailer for No Time to Die, it, it looks like this is the scenario is that Mon has been retired for some time now. Yeah, And he's once again coming back to the service. So in that case, it does kind of make sense that that Bond is seen as an old dog, as someone who can't really do the job, and who has been left behind. But that kinda of only goes as far as, as Bond himself. Bond as a character. Spectre makes the case that the entire MI6, the entire double program at least, <clears throat> is kind of a, has fallen behind the behind the times. And I, I still got kind of a question like. Like, how, in God's name, has that happened? Like, how do you drone strike a whitewashed North Korean dictator in in his battle armor who is using space laser satellites to destroy a minefield? Like, how do you drone strike that one? How do you not need an actual human person... To go face off the general and pull that trigger.
1: Uh, Moneypenny comes to inform Bond of the personal stuff collected from that better movie called Skyfall. This movie just really wants to make the connections. And I don't see why. But, of course, here it's got an integral story part. That's how it's built. In Bond's flat, there's the psychoanalysis of Bond from Moneypenny. You've got a secret. At this point, we as an audience know the secret. It's that... Bond has read the script for Spectre and he didn't like it. Fooey, yuck.
0: (laughs) But I I do appreciate the fact that we finally actually see Bond's flat. And when when it comes to Bond as a character, I do feel that that the flat actually is the most most telling, the most character part of the film. Because in in here you you see this lavish apartment, which has a big view and we, which must cost like a fortune and then you see how bond just squanders it completely and do, not, doesn't own any furniture doesn't own even basic groceries it's just a bottle of scotch and and a tv but like the flat is is, is so so bare bones and so unappealing that bond couldn't even bring his casual conquests into the apartment.
1: Yeah, we also see, I believe it's the same flat. Well, it's uh, they want to represent re- it as the same flat, as you see in Skyfall, where in Skyfall, James Bond's flat has been, has been put to some auction because he has been away too long. And the flat, yeah, it's kind of everything that I always expected the James Bond flat to be. The kind of, he's always on the go, and I suppose that's the reason that that his flat looks like a garage.
0: I I took it that it's simply because James Bond, especially Daniel Craig's James Bond, is kind of a broken man inside. Okay. There's, the, there's a running theme of, of the toll that James Bond's job takes on him. And, and the fact that his role as a government assassin who has to go on this larger-than-life situations and has to constantly kill people is kind of a eating him up from inside. You, you see this in Casino Royale where he tries to deal with the, with killing two persons by going to his bathroom, looking at his mirror reflection and just quickly coughing down a huge glass of scotch. A, kind of a drowning his emotions and his feelings. You see it in in the way how Bond integrates outside of MI6 after he's being shot down, where he's just immediately becomes washed up drunk, who has way too much time on his hands and doesn't know what to do. You even kinda, kinda get it in Spectre, where, where M gives his speech about how the license to kill is also a license not to kill. How there is a disconnect, between something like ordering a drone strike and you being there in a person, looking someone else into the eye as you pull that trigger and kill that person.
1: Yeah. It's that broken character. And it also makes an interesting point because outside of his flat, James Bond is always very into this lavish lifestyle. But it doesn't show up in his flat in any way.
0: No, it's it's, it's almost like a... It's almost like a shell that James Bond u- uh, uses. It it kind of is, is once again, it's, it's the Casino Royale situation where he has his game face on and all, all the nice things, all the hot cars and, and the tailor-made clothes that he uses. They are just a bluff which he uses to hide what he really is.
1: That's right. This M on tape trick what to say about this This provided to mailbox after she has died in that Skyfall movie. And she's explaining that if if anything happens to me in the movie Skyfall, please find a man called Sam Mendes. Just kidding. His name is Marcos Chiara. But this is a stupid idea.
0: It is, it is. It it hints to you that that Judy Dench's aim was already at least on some some level suspicious or... Or on knowing of Spectre somehow, and never actually saw saw it fit to do anything with that that knowledge.
1: Yeah, I think it's something that M could have easily informed of Bond in the previous adventure and not do it. Maybe, Mm.
0: maybe, Or, or inform British government, seeing how Spectre is the all encompassing, all engulfing bad guy. Super League of Master Criminals or some shit like that. Like, like you would think that if you suspect that that kind of organization exists, you would try to act to at least tell someone about it to warn somebody off. Especially seeing how much fuss they made out of the quantum group just previously. And, and Spectre is supposed to be quantum on steroids. So... Why do you keep your mouth shut? Why is the only thing that you actually say about the matter just a, a cryptic DVD message which doesn't even tell anything to Bone except, you know, hey, get your ass to Mexico. What, what it does in, in this film's case is that it undermines Ralph finances M who now doesn't really have any bearing when it comes to, you know, the Spectre part of the plot m is in in here m is almost solely tied down to the nine eyes plot which yeah ties with spectre in the end but for the longest time those are two separate plot lines and when it comes to the larger plot line investigate spectre m has shit all to do with it
1: it puts M in a really weird position, like, is he protecting somebody from Spectre, and he's giving the green light to kill somebody from Spectre only after somebody from Spectre has killed her. So Bond's been tracking Sciara ever since Skyfall's script ended, and he's going through the Skyfall files now from Money Money. Order of temporary guardianship, it says. Bond forgot who taught him half of his spy skills. He just can't quite remember and that also causes that he just quite doesn't give a shit throughout the runtime of this film of who Oberhauser is oh well, that's how it feels to me
0: I, I i kind of felt that it partly worked here that the whole point is adopted a thing it's it's mostly because it was already called to light very quickly in Casino Royale where Vesper makes the notion that Bond most likely is adopted or has been in in some part of his life, mm. and that that kind of could lead into why Bond feels disconnected from the world and why he why organizations strict structures like like MI6 Army would appear to Bond. And why something like MI6 would be eager to recruit some, someone like Bond to their ranks. So on, on that level, of the, the the adoption... I, I did feel that it quite fit the story. And it it wasn't ham-fistedly shoehorned into in Spectre's plot. What the film does with the adoption, however, is a completely different case.
1: Right, because it... Really doesn't do much. It could have done something, but then in the end it's like, ah, yeah, we need to break it down. Well, but yeah.
0: Yeah, it, it, yeah.
1: So MI6 HQ has been destroyed. New c are very close there. So what are we to believe here? So see, consensuously attends some kind of a Bilderberg meetings. Since, quote, in three days there's a security conference in Tokyo to decide the new world order. "Unquote."
0: Wow. And my, my my take is that it's just a meeting between the heads of different departments of of secret services from all these different nations,
1: or influencing some people like sharing some pesos with Jeff Pesos. Who knows?
0: I, I I would say that Pesos is most definitely not in in this case. Yeah. Pesos is is Oppenheimer who is behind the C- yeah. But the rest of the like what, what the meetings are, are just, just, once again, it's, it's intelligence officer bureaucrats meeting each other to negotiate about how the interaction or, or how, how the switch in the nine eyes is going to happen.
1: If C gets his way, he will have unlimited access to the combined intelligence streams of nine countries. And during this scene, we see on speedboat or such Tanner and Daniel Craig's James Bond. And we're going under the breaches of Thames like we did in the World is Not Enough opening scene. And uh, we have been quite a lot on Thames River, especially in the World is Not Enough. And I don't know, you can think it as a callback or, or you can also not. And... While Bond was away from the action, there was a train bombing in Hamburg and a CGI explosion in Tunisia, which is playing into C's hands conveniently. The guy is a big advocate of CGI explosions after all. Maybe that's what C stands for. But Q has set his new hideout under this bridge. Q stands, of course, for Cucumber Sandwich. And we get to the first proper cucumber scene of the Craig era. You may feel a small prick, he says, as we turn into the new kind of us tracking capability of the completely Jurassic Age MI6 smart blood.
0: Yeah, not all machines. once again.
1: Microchips in your bloodstream. It's actually uttered during the film. Microchips in your bloodstream? The fuck? Uh,
0: yeah, you... <sighs> Like, like, how how do they even work? And if, if if you take Spectre on the question, they barely actually do. Or if they do, they don't actually do anything. Because the whole smart blood thing is something that the film really does nothing with. Kinda? Why does it have to be blood? Anyway. Why, why, why does it even have to be there? This is a uh, this, this situation where... This is kind of, kind of the... The Casino Royale situation, where, where a huge fuss is being made about a tracking chip in, uh, implanted in, into Bond, so that his his superiors can keep an eye on where he is going, and then in, in Spectre, they don't really do pretty much like anything with with that tech and with the ability to to track Bond. It's it's essentially it's used. Is it only once in in the film where somebody actually u- really uses the knowledge of being able to track Bond to arrange a meeting with Bond? Like, does Q use the smart blood to be able to find the clinic and have a meeting with Bond?
1: Yeah, that's what I would heavily suspect. But then again, why can't it be just some kind of a regular microchip? Okay, Bond would use a knife and try to take it off, but smart blood... Okay, that's actually microchips in your bloodstream. That's what the movie is trying to sell to you. And Q goes to explain, You see those readouts? We can monitor your vital signs from anywhere on the planet. And Bond answers, what? (laughs) I guess this is going to be... He's trying to be shown as very funny because he's kind of a nonchalant, doesn't care about the situations that he's in, and says, Well, that sounds marvelous. But once again, this... Feels confusing. And even Q gets soon confused. And uh, the dialogue continues. Call it the post-Mexico insurance policy. By direct order from M. And Bond responds. I completely understand. So then they also play some quirky Bond theme variation in the background. And Q gets all confused at this point. I don't know why exactly. But he does. And to be fair Bond replies are quite puzzling. And I don't even know what the hell for? Like, what is Q supposed to feel at this moment? (laughs) I guess Q is just confused that James Bond is acting so warmly to all of this information that he's going to be tracked, but uh, the responses from Bond are a bit puzzling. And Bond gets a watch. And the watch is supposed to only help with the punctuality issues. It tells the time. And it's Suggested, therefore, that it's not supposed to do anything else. And five seconds later, the movie explains that it has a quite loud alarm, if you know what you mean. And Bond thinks he knows what he means. So this then suggested that it is actually an explosive. And we will see that it is an explosive. But the fact that it is, it, it ruins the joke just five seconds earlier that this is just telling the time. That would have been nice.
0: It, it would have been nice. And it would have also been keeping with the Q of Daniel Craig era of James Bond because in the previous films Q has been shown as a really kind of a low tech character Skyfall made made a big notion about how the only thing that Q gives to Bond is essentially is a fingerprint locked gun and that's about it and that really isn't Anything that big—that's really low tech in today's day and age.
1: Yeah, I kind of like that fingerprint detecting thing. You know, I remember that you hated it in *License to Kill*, but I think it's one of those low-tech devices and something that kind of makes sense to have.
0: It—it it works in in Daniel Craig's universe of Bond. Okay. And I—I I do like the fact that that in in these more more modern Bond films. Q is not some kind of a gadget wizard who has, like, I, I have been more than ready to get rid of explosing watches, a, a, any kind of a laser cutter watches, a, a, any kind of a magnetic shoes, grappling hook belt bucklers, and all, all this other, you know, spy gadgetry bullshit that usually goes on with Bond films and because of that it's kind of so disheartening to see that what Spectre does is once again fall back into the old tropes give Bond a supercar that has machine guns once again implanted into it give him an explosive watch I didn't need any of that I was actually quite happy to see that the franchise had finally let them go
1: yeah and you know what it, it uh it's so confusing also in the car chase sequence later in Italy. You have a car chase, but uh, what this massive amount of things to discuss about it. But the main thing is that, you know, they both have... Well, Bond has gadgets in this, in this car, but then they're not really used except at the last second. And it feels like the filmmakers are kind of like question marks throughout the street chase. Like, what the fuck are we going to do with these cars? because they don't have any tricks up their sleeves or they or that we don't want to use these tricks because audience expects something more grounded
0: and, and because the rest of the film also is or at least tries to be grounded at least on some level yeah like Spe- specter as a movie it doesn't go into the, the goofball extravaganza direction of of prostanis bones it, it doesn't throw you Another bad guy who also has a supercar. So you can have a supercar missile fight (laughs) on an ice plane field. (laughs) So Spectre kind of, it gives Bond a car which makes Bond way too strong against his opposition if he would be able to use it. So now Bond has a wonder car that hasn't loaded any bullets into it so he can't use the mini guns.
1: Yeah, when it comes to this exploding weaponry, so Bond gets an exploding watch. While just in the last movie, as, he, as it has been famously pointed out, he was just told that they don't really go for these exploding pens anymore. But I guess exploding omegas are still on board.
0: I, I, I guess consistency is something that really exploded in the script.
1: <laughs> yes. Continued dialogue. May I remind you that I answer directly to M. I also have a mortgage and two cats to feed. Well, then I suggest you trust me for the sake of the cats.
0: Which has Bond threatening Q and his livelihood? Basically, like a good jump he is. You could make that stretch.
1: Yeah, and finally Q reminds Spawn that during Spectre there might be an odd drop in Blood Logic for 24 hours or 48 hours. Money Penny at her desk. So she receives something from an admirer. There was something underneath that package. What was it again? She gets a cell phone. Yeah, I guess it's just crap to keep in contact with with Bond. M is, of course, too prestigious to check on Moneypenny's birthday on Facebook, and uh, Moneypenny feels very offended. Bond takes 009's car, and Bond goes to the funeral of Sciara. Sciara! It's written in this film as S C I A R R A. Funnily enough, when it's written in this way, in Italian, you would pronounce this then as Sciara, but it's always pronounced as Sciara. <laughs> Some Italian people were not impressed with this throughout the film.
0: It's it's nice to see that not just uh, us but an, uh, also a 300 million dollar film production can have some real problems with pronouncing names.
1: <laughs> All the money in the world I still can't pull it off. <laughs> Oberhauser leaves the party widow's days. There's a life insurance offer from James. And Bond says, I hear the life expectancy of some widows can be very short. You remember what happened in Casino Royale? There was this certain line, quote, Well, I understand O's have a very short life expectancy. So well, What is up with this constant referencing and so randomly? Like, at least I am pulling this as a reference to Casino Royale. God. Uh, then we go to Widow's Home, Lucia Schiara, played by Monica Bellucci. Everybody that said that she's kind of an older bond lady and... Uh, Due to that only, she's an interesting choice. Well, of course, she's also Monica Bellucci, so these two factors. And the funny thing is that she's the perfect match age-wise for Daniel Craig. As Bellucci was born in 1964 and Craig in 1968, so they are roughly the same age. And by God, I would have loved to see these two guys at the end of the film, driving with the Aston Martin to the sundown, sunset, whatever it was, to the end credits.
0: Same here. Th- then again, then again. After all, the fuss was made about Belucci appearing in the film. You get what five minutes of her, of course. Yeah, in total. Yeah, naturally, that's how it goes.
1: Like marketing hype, just as well as it was with the Day of the Dead. Although I kind of like that, but
0: mm. yeah, and and to kind of top that off, you, I, I would say, character-wise, you would have even had had a better. Chemistry with with Greg and Bellucci's characters than wh- what you have with with bo- between Bond and Swan. You would have had kinda sorta the the same starting off point. Bond is is present in in somebody's death. And that that death kinda of puts the lady's life in danger. Swan is in danger because of his dad and and Lucia is, is in danger because Bond threw her husband out of a helicopter so that the starting point is is the same but where, where Swan would have essentially been better off if Bond would have never actually shown his face to her Lucia is somebody who actually would started off being somewhat dependent on Bond's protection and and being around with Bond, since her name now is on, on the Spectre hit list.
1: Mm-hmm. That would have actually been interesting to follow how it would turn out. Yeah, that's actually stakes here in a way.
0: Yeah, o- of course. All that being said, I never actually understood why Spectre now want to kill Lucia. B. Like, I, I, I get that uh, from the film's point of view. The driving motive would be that Spectre is closing off the loose ends now that Mm -hmm. it no longer longer has its lieutenant. And they want to keep Lucia from, you know, going to the officials and spilling the beans. But at the same time, you know, Lucia acts like she already knows that now that her husband is dead, Spectre is going to send a hit team after her, which like logic would say that that would just make you more eager to call the authorities and look for protection. So from from Spectre's point of view, which is supposed to be some kind of a mastermind organization, I would make the argument that it would have been easier for them and much less risky to, you know, simply throw a couple of million dollars at Lucy's direction and buy her a mansion at some distant location and be like, don't worry about anything. We cover all the expenses as long as you keep your mouth shut and don't go to the authorities about our existence.
1: Maybe, but I think the film is making the case that the organization hasn't hasn't trusted uh, Lucia from the get go, and the only one who was in between Spectre and her was uh, was uh, her husband. And now that she, he's gone, he's she's going to be taken out of the way just as, as a precaution.
0: Hmm. Yeah, well, could be, could be.
1: Monica Bellucci actually auditioned for the role that went to Terry Hatcher in Tomorrow Never Dies, this uh, very unfortunate movie where, well, this was actually one of the better parts of the film where Terry Hatcher would play the old love interest of James Bond. And uh, then just one day, Terry Hatcher's character left James Bond because of James Bond's lifestyle, which is, uh, quote, murder on Relationships as it is, and yeah, Monica Bellucci was supposed to pull that role off, but instead the producers, for whatever reason, then went to Terry Hatcher, and Brosnan had a lot of issues apparently with Terry Hatcher during this film. Probably a lot of this is thrown out of the proportion in the media, but uh, Brosnan said about Terry Hatcher that she was not on schedule at the shooting locations, and this behavior started to irritate him. Later, it was, though, brought into attention that Terry Hatcher had also had some kind of a morning sickness and she was pregnant, so this might have contributed. But uh, Brosnan said some not very nice things towards Terry Hatcher during the shooting. And also, he had nothing very good to say about the producers after at least when he left the James Bond franchise. I'm not sure, but it it was pretty bad what he said about the producers, like... Mm about making the decision to go with Terry Hatcher. Of course, this is a very artistic scene. There's this opera singing for the background, which suits this well. But um, when we have the shot where Monica Bellucci is uh, on the foreground, expecting to get killed by the pool or what you have you outside there. So Bond is kept out of focus uh, when he shoots the baddies. And then he comes to frame pretty much to the same level as the widow, Lucia. So the limited depth of field is here still for no particularly good reason except for the fact that it's one take. But you see Lucia on the left side and she's completely on focus. And Then on the right side, what you feel like is Daniel Craig just opposite of her, not in focus. And I, I think this doesn't work too well. Of course, later they focus on Craig and then back to Bellucci and they have to do this thing. This depth of field effect could have been done digitally to avoid this problem, but you know, it is what it is.
0: A bigger pro- problem than the than the depth of field here is is kind of kind of the ongoing chemistry and more notably the ag- aggression between Bond and Lucia, which actually gives the love scene kind of a rapey wipe.
1: Oh, okay, I didn't think about it here too much, of course, Bond was once again pushing his own self interests there, which is really clear, but I think
0: Well, there is the whole Lucia is seething with anger and being afraid in the situation since Bond has just uh, to quote her, signed her death warrant, and then there is Bond throwing around the champagne glasses and then just, you know, slowly pushing Lucia against the Mirror and like
1: yikes. What do you think more about this weird uh, r- replies from James Bond into situations for like this? Like sounds like fun. I might drop by. I think it's funny. It's a, a stupidity, but kind of lacking punch again
0: in some way. It, it does, and in what what it also sounds like is that Bond doesn't realize how dangerous the situation could be. Yeah. Like 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 saying sound uh, things like sounds are like fun. I might drop by. I I would see that more in, for example, Pierce Brosnan's films, which are not so heavy. Like where where there it's there's less weight in the world of the films. They are more adventurous. They are more casual. They are more fun, more energetic. And I could see that in that universe. Bond could really hear about bad guy, evil meeting thing and just, you know, decide that carelessness carelessness to the wind. I just, you know, try to sneak into this meeting by going through the front door. But it doesn't really resonate with Daniel Craig's universe, which is supposed to be this every bullet can kill, every hit can kill. You are in constant danger type of word.
1: I found something shocking from Brasnan that he said about the one-liners, quote, It never felt real to me. I never felt I had complete ownership of, over Bond. Because you'd have these stupid one-liners, which I loathed, <laughs> and I always felt phony doing them. I'd look at myself in the suit and die and think, what the heck am I doing here? Yeah, that's the end of the quote. Really surprising to me. I thought he always enjoyed it doing the shtick that he
0: was doing. I can kind of understand that he didn't like it, because as as his run went on, the film's uh, uh, or the Bond's dialogue, Pierce Brosnan's Bond, Bond's dialogue just turned into nothing except, you know, one-liner after one-liner and goofy punch after goofy punch.
1: Yeah, if, you, if your last movie, like it was, was Die Another Day, that can leave a little bit of a bad taste in the mouth about the dialogue. Once again, it's probably not intentional, but when Bond leaves Bellucci, it reminds me of Brosnan's Bond leaving Rosamund Spike character alone in this swan bed in Die Another Day, even though not the angles are not exactly the same. But uh, yeah, so off we go. There will be this meeting in Palazzo Cardenza at midnight to... To find a replacement for Christoph Waltz, I mean Schiara. Bond talks a little bit of Italian, as we noted in the beginning of the episode. And there's also all these different elements that are, once again, explained about the Spectre organization. They control drug markets, prices, and they're trying to control different things to their advantage around the world. There's the feedback from the microphone, and uh, Oberhauser arrives into the room. This scene does not work visually. Because when he arrives, Oberhauser is shown always constantly from above, from being below everyone's eye level. So this makes him seem not menacing at all. Like, it's more like a sweet uncle, just like he actually plays the character, goddammit, apart from being, doing the violent deeds, like with the drill at the end. Jesus. And this is one of the scenes that gets the biggest respects one of the biggest respect is coming from the cinematography of the scene there's nothing wrong with the cinematography per se but there is the problem that i think that bond is above this bad guy and i just don't feel the dynamic working you're trying to introduce somebody who is the the biggest antagonist james bond has ever faced and i just don't feel it
0: i kind of did get it precisely cinematography wise like on this situation it kind of makes sense that Bond would still be on on top of Blofeld since Bond is not yet aware of who Blofeld is and therefore can easily see that or or believe that Blofeld is nothing more than just once again one bad guy leader who he already has killed two of so on, on, on that regard, I can I can kind of see where where the cinematography and where kind of a Bond's position in this moment still would come from.
1: Mm. It's like a menacing introduction. It's good play with the the shadows. It's just uh, may, maybe it's all about the portrayal of Christoph Waltz. The it... pro-
0: yeah yeah Christoph Waltz. Does not work, in my opinion. I I kind of feel that what he's trying to do is some kind of a toned down Hans Landa from Inglorious Bastards. Here,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I got kind of the same feeling that he would be trying to do. You know, looking very harmless, but then doing something unexpectedly horrible in a
0: way. But... And and I I can. I, and I get it. I, I can understand why you would try to go with that kind of a uh, presentation. Why that would could be the role, uh, the type of role that you try to give. But I don't feel it working in Spectre. I, I would a- actually go as far as to say that Christoph Woltz's Portrayal of Blofeld actually ends up undermining the character.
1: Absolutely. There's no menace physically, and I think the Inglorious Bastard's way of approaching the character just doesn't work. And then him also being trying to be comical in this menacing way, like, cuckoo. That's how the scene ends, goddammit, with cuckoo. I mean, we later get the reference that the cuckoo is, it's a reference to a bird anecdote that he will do later, but it just makes him look like an idiot, uh, or makes him look like something out of Austin Powers.
0: And and part, part of why it might not work is the fact that when it comes to Blofeld in Spectre, he doesn't really do anything that horrific. Like, the, the dynamic that Waltz is trying to Play is a lot like you mentioned, harmless on the surface and then does a horrible act. That's very much what also Landa was in 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 Glorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. But where Landa got repeated moments of horrific actions and some of his actions were really horrific in in that film. In, in spectre what what does Blofeld do that is really that horrific. The only thing that comes to my mind is the real torture scene, which, to be honest, is not really brutal, doesn't really look that horrific. The characters say that it is. And Daniel Craig does scream like he's in a lot of pain. But you're not shown anything horrific visually-wise. And even during that torture, all, all that Blofeld is doing is sitting on front of a computer and pushing a button.
1: Yeah, yeah, there there is like zero physical contact between these, these guys, right?
0: Yeah, it, it, it's, it's not like in, in Glorious Bastards where Landa comes into the the farmer's home and casually, you know, drinks milk while he's psychologically tearing the guy apart or, you know, pissing, uh, t- taking him down, seeing, kind of uh, judging the situation. And then orders a goddamn execution company to come in and shoot a, a family that is hiding under the floorboards. Yep. That's a horrific action. That's a brutal conflict where Landa actually plays a major role. And in, in that, it works. In in there, it, it works to have a really social, kind of a harmless happy character and then show you that he orders a group of men to execute a family. But it doesn't work when when the most drastic thing that your character does is push on a button and basically just say to the audience that, yeah, this is going to hurt.
1: Yeah. This is followed by this uh, chase scene that lasts forever or I'm not even sure if it's a chase scene or whatever it is. Uh, whatever, though we have, as far as the statistics go, is that seven Aston Martins in total were destroyed during the filming. That alone cost 48 million dollars. 48 million dollars, and the budget was, what, like 250 million dollars, more or less. Oh, seriously, that's crazy. That's that's a huge part of the budget.
0: Yeah, and you, you kind of spend it on one action set piece that isn't even that exciting to be honest it's it's and
1: not it's it, it doesn't have any fucking focus here we have two cars i get it but then we have a phone call to to money so it's dragging the audience attention from this chase that is supposed to be our focus to a phone call about the sexual relationships of Moneypenny. What are you doing, movie? Yeah, and then you have then you have one guy or one old guy. You do this old shtick that the old guy who is well in this case listening to music and is completely clueless of what is happening, and he's been in this vehicle that is very slow, so he's being pushed by to somewhere. And the and the uh, yeah, but there's nothing original about that. We've seen it so many times that it's not even funny in any level.
0: Yeah, and the the tone kind of just keeps shifting. Like, the, the chase starts from the Spectre secret mansion, where you actually see a brutal murder of, of one of the Spectre lieutenants. Then, and from there, you end up to the cars. The chase proper starts. So you are still in this, this is a really dangerous situation. You just see, saw a horrible murder. And then it all of a sudden, it jumps into, into jokes. In the middle of the chase. Yes. And then from the jokes, it once again, it tries to get back into, you know, the excitement and the tension. And this is still the chase that started with horrible murder. And it's like...
1: And which at which point you have kind of already forgotten that there's also a chase going on here. Yeah. And it's funny looking at... They spent a lot of time just following these cars on the streets of Rome. And nothing is happening in those shots. Like, absolutely fucking nothing. They don't basically serve any purpose. They show the cars are driving. Great. And then they go the steps down uh, next to this river and the chase continues. We have some kind of close-ups of the cars. But as soon as they get next to the river, then again <laughs> then again, we pull back. We pull back into this uh, kind of establishing shot level shot of the cars. And we see them going by there. Yeah. Okay, who who gives a shit? Why are you not intensifying the editing and the shots? You're just pulling away and then you're coming back. And at the end, nothing happens here. Bond actually goes to the lengths of uh, using the ejector seat to to launch him off this chase scene that he considers to be so boring that he doesn't want to continue it. So he just ends it there.
0: Yeah, yeah. the The entire chase in the end ends up being completely pointless. Right. And talking talking about completely pointless. Can you tell me exactly what the fuck happened in the Spectre meeting? Because I've never been able to piece it together. Uh, okay. Why does Dave Bautista all of a sudden <clears throat> walk into a room and gouge a man's fucking eyes out?
1: Yeah. It...
0: Is it is it like like they, they 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 had an open position. They they ask who wants to take this job. Then One guy, only fucking one guy says, I will do the job. Nobody opposes that. Everybody's fine with that. And then Bodista just walks into the room and murders the guy. Like, the fuck? Is that like, you know, Spectre version of job interview? Like, if you don't die, you get the job. Or or, is that the reason why every single Bond villain always has a funny quirk? Like, did did Dr. No get his position... Because he didn't die when his fucking hands got chopped off.
1: Yeah, this is really not communicated well to the audience. But uh, what happens there is that I think is that this guy who says that no more amateurs, no more mistakes in Italian, uh, he he is supposed to take over. But I took that because he says that no more amateurs, no more mistakes. He might be in some way connected to the mistakes that... uh, developed this whole Skiara problem and now because there's somebody better or somebody who doesn't, is not involved with the Skiara conflict, he's there to gouge the guy's eyes out so he can replace him because, well he's better anyway or maybe they planned it out but, way, but, b- way before the meeting started so it's just for the show
0: Yeah, because because Bautista does not inherit the dude's position he, he simply is st- you know, stays as Blofeld's henchman. Okay. Dumb muscle and nothing else. He doesn't become any kind of a lieutenant in the organization.
1: Well, I took it that he replaced Skiara, but uh, if not, Uh, then it doesn't work. I don't
0: see him, like the film doesn't show you him doing any any kind of a leadership things.
1: Because I took that it's kind of exposing his CV, it's his credentials when he kills the guy. I can take take this job.
0: Okay, that that could be, but once again, I I never saw that in film because because Batista never does anything with the role. The, the next time you see him is when he's punching, uh, is is when he's kidnapping Swan from the clinic, and that's a henchman job. And then he's punching <sighs> Bone's stupid face in the train. That's a henchman job, but uh, a la odd
2: job
0: mm-hmm. So there's like if 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 Bodista kind of took the chop, mur- murdered the dude and got his job In in that case, I would say that the film should have shown you a moment where Bodista is just you know sitting behind a uh, behind a table, being on the phone, giving orders, and not on the goddamn field doing grunt work.
1: Yeah, the I see this character as. Problematic because they're trying to do the odd job thing again and it's so obvious. Secondly, which is what is a problem here, is that we are communicated that they're supposed to have some kind of a funny connection. They keep sharing these smiles to each other and they're supposed to be. To me, that tells that they are supposed to have some previous connection or they shared some funny moment, like Roger Morris James Bond shared a lot of funny moments with Jaws. So it's understandable that they would share some smiles and have this playful manner of trying to kill each other. But with Bautista, nothing has been developed.
0: Yeah, and and uh, uh, once again, it comes to the universes of of all the pawned actors. Roger Moore's universe, where he is pawned operated, it once again was kind of a fantastical, easygoing, nothing is. So serious type of universe. It kind of made sense that there you could have a knowing smirk between the enemy who tries to kill you. But once again, Daniel Craig's universe is supposed to be super dangerous, super violent. Where a man's eyes get caught out of his goddamn head for no apparent reason. Like this is supposed to be cruel, violent and nihilistic world. So, eh? Yeah,
1: indeed. Uh, The ejector seat escape was apparently a plot idea from from the third Dalton movie, which of course never happened. Uh, The Aston would feature in an action scene where Bond goes over a cliff but parachutes to safety by using the Martin's ejector seat. And uh, yeah, Uh, there's a lot of small things that have been kind of put into different films when they were not used in the original script. Throughout the franchise. But the colorization of the film. Woo-ha! So, no tight curves anywhere. It's always very gray. Kind of blurry because it doesn't have definition. And therefore I feel it's kind of unstriking. It's trying to do some kind of a dark night thing again. Or at least be dark. But what it does essentially is just gray faded tones of some high school yearbook almost. Urine yellow colors. Really, this is not a joy to watch.
0: No, and it once again, like, at, at this point, you all almost start to sound like a broken record. But it once again, it it kind of reeks of laziness. Yeah. Like, let let's look back at previous Bond films. How did they those films do? Glamour, and let's 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 you know, let's take loots from there. Let's let's take the cinematography from from there. Let, let's take the establishing shot from there.
1: But then, not really, because this this is a weird color scheme. I I don't remember anything like this. You look at the Prossen no, run; you not, have n- clear colors. So this is trying to do something marvelous I guess.
0: Uh, i yeah, marvelous is what I would say. It. Dark knight inception type of thing. This might be some kind of a leftover from the times when when Nolan was supposed to direct the film, mm-hmm. and it, like it might be that that may have uh, you know instigated an image into some Mendez's head or or something like that. But the the coloring of the movie doesn't to me it does not look like anybody gave any real thought like how am I going to color this film. This doesn't look like the case where where the dude in charge of the coloring of the movie spent, like, weeks or or even days thinking, like, what color scheme fits this film.
1: Yeah. uh, Anyways, Nine Eyes Gathering. We need more. Much more. I'm not going to continue with that. But that's how the scene starts. And um, more data, more analysis, less likelihood of a terrorist attack is the proposition. So we're still going with the post-Skyfall, post-Snowden data breach plotlines, once again, as stated. Tanner sees the article street race ends with a splash, and now Bond's cover is blown. <laughs> Three million dollar prototype in the river. That's good job. So the motion is not passed yet, because South Africa repels it. Q lies about the location of a Bond, that he would be in Chelsea or London, but he's actually in Aldousia, Austria. And we get to the Austria hut with Return of Mr. White who we know from Quantum of Solace and Casino Royale. This is some kind of a fan-favorite moment, as I understand. I don't know. It's one of the best scenes in the film, still. it's He was supposed to be killed, actually, in Quantum of Solace, but those scenes were cut off and have never been seen. And it's the only bad guy that appears in three movies in the franchise. Thallium poisoning in the cell phone. Somehow Mr. White grew a conscience. He disobeyed Mr. Oberhauser. And followed him as far as he could. But then Oberhauser changed. He mentions women, children. Yeah, I suppose he's referring to those random bombings around the world. So, I don't know what to think about it. Mr. White was still doing pretty creepy deeds. Indeed.
0: Yeah, I mean, he was still helping, like, Ugandan militias and yeah, <laughs> God knows what revolutionaries. I'm kind of a. I'm. I'm going off with off with a hunch here, but I would guess that those guys either weren't too concerned about the women and children.
1: Right. Somehow Bond learns that uh, he's protecting his daughter, and now Bond shall protect the daughter. And uh, something interesting that we will get later on when we see the tape of this situation. I'm making the statement that Bond wasn't planning on giving him the gun to make him shoot himself. It was just like a guarantee that, hey, you have an opportunity to shoot me. Uh, so this is the kind of a guarantee that I will give to you in ways of protecting your daughter.
0: And I I, I would also, you know, to me, uh, that also is how the scene reads.
1: Yeah. And
0: I, I, I would say that the film uh, uh, also agrees with that reading. Seeing how Mr. White reacts when he first picks the gun, he points it at Bond and Bond doesn't even flinch. So it's, it wasn't any kind of a, you know, assassination situation. It wasn't Bond trying to force Mr. White to kill himself. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, coming back to this point later on in, in, in the film, when, when the recordings are being shown, I... Can't really see how the fuck Swan could have read it that way. It's But a... they, they, they present the recordings as it's somehow <laughs> supposed to be condemning evidence against Bone, which Swan mm-hmm. shouldn't see.
1: That's that's how but, I read it. And I could never crack like, why movie are you doing this? Or what are you trying to tell me? Once again, there's many situations throughout this movie where I don't understand what the movie wants to tell to me. And here it's either that Madeline one is now blaming James Bond kind of for the death of his father. But that really doesn't make sense.
0: No, now. it doesn't.
1: Right. And because it doesn't make sense, then it makes James Bond's reaction to the tape really confusing as well. Because he's like, no, yeah. no, 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 no. Turn it off. Turn it off. When did James Bond ever get so... Why did Bond get so emotional about this, this tape? He has never been particularly emotional when it comes to death, that's kind of his M.O., his job, to not have any feelings. You can read it in a way that he's trying to protect Swan from not watching the tape. But also for me, that doesn't really match with the level of intensity that he comes towards Oberhauser. Please don't show this tape.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that what it's supposed to do is once again tied back to the day, Sam Smith, how do I leave, how do I breathe? romance thing between swan and bond like bond is trying to protect swan's feelings towards him so he doesn't want swan seeing the tape because then swan would no longer love bond uh, right and, and and on top of that on top of that the the fucking video recordings of mr white's death once again i maintain in no way actually would give the impression that Bond is at fault for Mr. White's death. Yeah. I I would say anything you can see on the recording unless it's it's heavily edited. Like I would say sci-fi levels of video editing. Everything <sighs> on the tape would show you that Mr. White simply committed a suicide and it's not Bond's fault.
1: When it comes to the character of Madeline's one, the only way that I think you can fix some of the shortcomings in the supposed love story of Spectre in No Time to Die is to to go full on ahead in the direction of betrayal of Madeline Swan. As the trailer kind of suggests, there is this dialogue piece. Why would I betray you? And Bond replies, we all have our secrets. We just didn't get to yours yet. So you could go with that. That Madeleine's one was just one one puzzle in the in the in the entire Spectre plot in some way because that's that's the better way to go about it than James Bond being head over heels in love with the character because it doesn't work.
0: It most definitely doesn't.
1: Yeah, one of the best quotes of the entire film is in the scene, uh, w- which is kind of weird, but I think it's completely original to the script. This uh, quote: "You're a kite dancing in a hurricane, Mister Bond." Quite like
0: that. The film also quite like that. thing you know. the notion <laughs> kind of gets repeated.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's in the trailer. You mean, or
0: it, it's in the trailer. It's also, if I remember correctly, in, in some fan posters or I, I, maybe even in legit posters of the film.
1: Yeah, many people like that. So I'm, him is explaining his concerns about C. Uh, This, which we already discussed, has Max ever needed to kill? A license to kill is also a license not to kill. And and, then Max one-ups M with the surveillance because he has a tape recording of a cell phone call between Moneypenny and Bond. Batista, or Hinks as he's known, visits Mr. White and somehow finds the security camera still on the wall, running, and for some reason Bond was too stupid apparently to destroy the footage before he left the hut, or he was in too much of a hurry all of a sudden, leaving clues for no reason really. But hey, Dr. Madeline Swan is now introduced, even though we have been talking a lot about Swan already, so Bond arrives to the clinic. Swan, of course, doesn't believe that Bond would be there to protect him, which is completely natural since Bond has already set up the entire premise to Swan in a way that she would believe he's there to kill her like quote humor me how does one train at Oxford and then Sorbonne become a consultant spend two years with Medicine Sans Frontières and end up here and it's like confronting this character being quite aggressive with words of course she thinks that he's going to hurt her I would think so. But uh, Q comes to say hi to Bond. Interesting character moment for Bond. Q is telling kind of snarkily why he's there and what has happened. And Bond is like, get to the point. I've never seen Daniel Craig's Bond so visibly irritated in a conversation like this before. Pretty good Daniel Craig Bond moment there as the action starts rolling. He's uh, punching the guards and then says to one of them, no, stay. Somehow magically, Bond gets the plane, Britain Norman Islander plane, from out of nowhere. There was apparently an airfield nearby. There's this Roger Moore winky wink from the plane to Bautista's direction. Once again, Bond doesn't struggle, especially in this scene. It's just this destroying the plane in a live and let die way where the flings fly off this plane. There's also this on Her Majesty's vibes all over it the wintry cable car. And the trailer even had a portion of Reese's uh, on Her Majesty's music. And uh, there's many On Her Majesty's references and parallels. Moreover, I think Bond could have easily killed Swan with his adolescent antics. Like she's shooting the car and damaging another while he's descending with the plane and crashing onto one car and it explodes to pieces.
0: Yeah, it's kind of kind of a hard to see what is Bond's rationale here like what is he actually trying to do and how and why right and and yeah
1: and why is yeah why is he doing this because he could just as well just follow these bad guys and uh, see him being taken to the baddies' base of operations just like that
0: precisely or or if he would you know want to intercept the hijacking of swan he could have you you know save all the plane stunts into the open area and try to use plane there instead of, you know, flying it down the middle of a goddamn forest road.
1: Yeah. There's the scene where Bond goes through a wooden shack with the vehicle. This just reminds me of For Your Eyes Only when the motorcycles are going through the shack. I don't know. This feels like a reference to me. And then madeleine's once reaction is completely something that Natalia Fyodorova simonova would have done in GoldenEye. Like... She kicks Bond in the foot and says, let go of me or something. And here it's Don't Touch Me.
0: But more than more, more than Bond Bond's antics, it's the Q's antics that I most definitely can't stand. Which antics are those? And this is the point where the film finally where I I finally got the message that the film is beyond salvation. That you can't salvage this wreck. It's Q and his goddamn fucking magic scanner, <laughs> which he brought brought with him to Austria. Which, like, if if you haven't seen the film, that the way how, how this scene plays out, and I'm, I I I wish I would be kidding, is that, like mentioned in in the opening of the film, Bond steals steals the ring from Skiara and somehow realizes that it's very important, so he carries it in his pocket. Throughout the film, now he hands it to Q and Q ha- has with him his laptop and a scanner. Places the ring on the scanner and the scanner scans the DNA trace of every single person ever who has touched the ring and somehow deciphers that from the DNA deciphers the person's identity even though Spectre is supposed to be a super-secret organization who, where you don't know who its members are. And mysteriously, the only people who have touched the ring are, are the Spectre lieutenants and Blofeld himself. And then it also creates a diagram of the entire top Spectre organization against an octopus-shaped background. And and may I say, Duncan I precisely mean that. Like, like the the top dog is Oppenheimer. There's a mugshot of him as a kid, and then there is line goes down. It gets divided into Spectre lieutenants, and most likely would go even down from there, showing the underlings of each lieutenant. And that's how MI six finds out and gets the solid evidence that Spectre exists in this film, where. MI6 is supposed to be stuck on a technological dark age.
1: (laughs) Right. So DNA, I I completely missed that part that it's actually reading the DNA. I thought it was just reading the ring and making connections to the ring in the database. But like you, I really, really don't like this when these computer interfaces are too visually pleasing but not really usable in any way. And you're supposed to believe that this is usable.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's kind of like, it, it's the laziest, it's most ham-fisted way ever. How MI6 w- could come to realize that Spectre really does exist. And this is not just some kind of a bones paranoid fantasy theory.
1: Yeah. Uh, the one ring that rules them all. Including Green. Now, Green is shown on the computer monitor as well when Q and Swan meet. In this is it a hotel room?
0: Yeah, shown air quotation marks.
1: The only part where he's shown.
0: The, the, the only part. And even here he's shown in a in real quick fashion. Like blink and you miss it. And he's hidden in the right side of the screen. So back to the right side of the screen that most likely the audience's viewpoint is fixed on the middle of the image meaning that the, a bit blurred, hidden on the right side, picture of Green's face is something that's really easy to miss here.
1: Yeah. If you watch the trailer for the film, in the trailer, Q asks, quote, do you know who links them all? And Bond replies, me. But in the final movie, however, Bond replies, him referring to Oberhauser. Uh, interesting change. It, it makes way more sense, of course. Well, Bond is linked to them, but I think it's, Better to not draw so much attention to James James Bond and how he's linked to every goddamn thing. Spectre is terrorizing Cape Town now so that he can get his intelligence imperium working. And Lamerican, they learn it's not a person, but it's a place. And the only link to Oberhauser. So they go to Lamerican, which is a hotel in Tangier, Morocco. Swan is just in this scene as well, so cold and... Dull and disconnected from Bond. Kind of in her own world. Of course, Daddy was just killed and all. It's hard to believe that they got her back to No Time to Die, but uh, that that happened. I can't believe she would want to return as an actor.
0: I Um, wouldn't if I would be on her shoes. Then again, I don't know how many millions was involved.
1: Right, but also considering the fan reaction to this, it was really mixed. Like, oh, wow, Swan, really? Again. It didn't work the first time around.
2: hmm
1: hmm James Bond goes to Morocco on cheer again. Okay, I guess I'm going to go easy on that. I think he has only been in Dansier in the Living Daylights. Moment with the mouse. Who sent you? Who are you working for? Uh I don't know. Maybe not that funny. Or maybe not meant to be.
0: No, it it kind of a makes Bond look like he's unhinged.
1: Yeah, but this is the clue where conveniently now they find the secret room inside the hotel.
0: (laughs) Yeah, which for some odd reason either has been completely okay with the hotel or then the hotel has never noticed that one of its rooms has mysteriously gotten smaller because Mr. White has built an extra wall to hide his secret room. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Lots of clack, 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 clank, and all these sounds. You know, repairing and putting the fake wall in there, and then leaving for one year and coming back later.
0: Yep, yep. (laughs) And nobody notices. Nobody notices.
1: Maybe it was a deal with the hotel. Nobody knows.
0: No, nobody knows. Nobody explains. Nobody tells you shit.
1: And this is the place and time in the film where we don't really know anymore where the film wants to go from here where to take itself where we get to know that is the room but there's not like this natural continuing intrigue anymore at least after this point from scene to scene as perhaps there is in skyfall it just doesn't carry very well on from scene to scene
0: no it, it becomes a kind of a it becomes a combination of of locations like, like, from here, Bond and, and The Swan, they get on to a train. They are on train. Then, on the middle of train trip, they decide to get off the train. <laughs> a car comes and picks them up and drives them to the to blowout secret hideout base. Mm-hmm. Like, that the film stops communicating to its audiences how the characters know what to do and why they do what they do. Why, yeah. how does Bond know that this is the spot where we have to get off the train in the middle of a fucking desert? And why does Blofeld send his chauffeur to go and pick Bond and Swan? And why does
1: the train stop there? Was it sp- yeah. especially arranged? And why are they sitting there at the tra- train stop or whatever this hut is doing nothing? Are they expecting their little Uber car or what?
0: Yeah. like like none of this is actually you know told to you in no way the film never actually explains any of this it just becomes it becomes like no they are here now they are here now they are here
1: yeah yeah scene
0: exchange
1: country hopping just going to danger morocco like that and then it's just one convenient uh, vehicle or movement after another
0: yeah i mean that the fucking Film, even the third act uh, starts this way. Bond Mm -hmm. explodes the watch on Blofeld's face. And by all logic, you would think that that would have killed Blofeld. So Bond has. So you would believe that Bond now believes that Blofeld is dead. Mm -hmm. A bomb just went off. So then Bond just remarks, it's not over yet. And knows to go back to London where Blofeld has retreated Mm -hmm. for some reason.
1: Also, this uh, ham-fisted way of getting Swan on the train in the first place. place—like She wants to understand what happened to his father, I get it, but really so much so that she's ready to die for it, for this guy who was so horrible throughout her life, and she doesn't want to do anything with with this organization. I don't buy it.
0: Yeah, this would have been, like I said before, this is the situation where Lucia would have worked better mm-hmm. as a character. Like, Lucia could have still stuck with Bond for protection. But Swan would have actually been more safe if she would not follow Bond. Like Any distance that she can put up be- between her and Bond is actually good for her.
1: In 72 hours, she will get control of the intelligence databases, so they need to hurry up a bit. In the train, Bond is trying to give like this arms training for Swan, but apparently she doesn't need any. She just happens to hate the guns. This is a sick 226. And there's this whole backstory that she once killed someone who came to kill his father. And later, of course, in the story, uh, Oberhauser explains that he once came to their flat to... See her father, and Swan replies that uh, she doesn't remember that, but he does. So is this yes. reference to this particular moment or not? Apparently not. Oh, I because, don't know. Yeah, I think they are not connected in any way, so it's kind of left just hanging there.
0: Yeah, because once again, if it was Blofeld, then it does make makes no sense that that Swan hates guns. Mm, yeah. You, you you didn't kill anyone. You ain't traumatized. I suppose. Unless she killed that. that yeah, I, I, if, if she killed that person, in that case, it wasn't Blofeld who tried to kill Swan's exactly. father.
1: Like. <laughs> so Q and MoneyPone interrupt Ems evening. Q now willing to share Bond's location and delete all the smart plot files as instructed and train drinks. Connery di- dinner jacket from Goldfinger, of course, is brought into this scene. And <clears throat> Somehow, I, yeah, just this Leia Seduce portrayal of this character. Everything is kind of lackluster after Evergreen, but I, I, I see just manufactured chemistry and trying to create something that was with Evergreen, but so weakly that no way it's working on any level they're having an operative and an alcoholic beverage and a vodka martini dirty and somehow this vodka martini dirty is very funny for swan and they're now artificially building this kind of a bonding in the train which is forcing this relationship to grow between them i don't know what's funny about vodka martini the dirty is it the dirty that is funny ha 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 or is it uh, the i'm are...
0: guessing that's supposed to be it
1: uh, oh my god i please no and then swan asks about what would happen if Bond would quit his job? So, once again, this Evergreen kind of thing's going on. Or, or on Her Majesty's Wipes, where James Bond says that he will quit his job and uh, I love you so much, baby. That kind of thing. And the drinks arrive. Bond says, could you leave them there, please? I don't know if this is some, is this some kind of an etiquette thing to say in some moments, but but was this a necessary line once again? Maybe he wanted to specify a place, like, could you leave the drinks under my table, please? Of course he's going to leave them on the table. <laughs> uh, anyway. Handheld camera seeing The camera is a little bit off axis. Strain fight ensues with Hinks. And uh, what can I say? I actually enjoyed the physicality of this fight. It's one of my favorite parts of the troubled film. Because, yeah, he's a, he's a very physical character. Hinks. And, uh, a serious, like, a physical threat. and. He moves very quick for being a very big character. I kind of dig that.
0: Uh, At least, you know, it is the best fight of the film. And at least here you get a sense that there are some stakes in this fight.
1: But then again, we are in a train and the James Bond franchise is notorious for goddamn trains. We have been in trains in so many movies. I mean... Yeah, it's a normal mode of transportation. But come on, we have had already a fight in trade in Live and Let Die where the guy is thrown out of the window. We have The Spy Who Loved Me quite after that where Jaws is thrown out of the window of the train and now we're throwing Hinks out of the train. And Yeah, th- and
0: we, we we were fighting in trains already in in already in, in Strong Connery era. Like,
1: oh, yes, we did r- from, from Russia. Russia is,
0: is famous for for having a fight in a train.
1: Yes, you're right. And uh, From Russia is Lo- With Love is also famous for creating this audio landscape where the, when the fight is going on, the, you know, the noise from the train heightens. And that's what it does here as well. You hear you hear, you hear nothing but the train noise, which you didn't hear at all during the drinks. So that's, that's, that's kind of what they're kind of looking for mood-wise. Yeah but then you have this one dialogue from dialogue piece from from Batista, and it's shit really really like really that's it like that's the that's the best you could come up with like this is probably what Jess Butterworth was polishing in these lines right here right this the teenager appealing language and this is what he would target for teenagers seriously it's really awkward for me i couldn't study in the theater i still can't Stand it after four watches of this film.
0: Yeah, like, I I can't believe that this is how the film tries to distinguish Hinks from Odd Chop. Both are mute, brute force, muscle henchmen. Except it turns out that Hinks actually was able to talk. Followed by, what
1: do we do now? And of course, we have sexy time. Really? Mm. What do we do now? Well, definitely not penetration. I don't buy this situation at all, but it was kind of a funny transition, but the problem is that I don't see this happening for these characters.
0: Not the least.
1: Yeah, way too hasty. Car pickup, yeah, that is a Rolls-Royce Silver Wraith. Can you possibly know the year? But Bond does, 1948. These were produced from between 1946 to 1958, and the Silver Wraith was also seen in From Russia With Love when Karim Bey's son used to drive Bond and Karim around in Istanbul. Once again, planting something from the past. And the black guy has, is having the similar driver clothes. This could be seen as a reference to Dr. No, because it's the same. Driver clothes, I guess, driver clothes are pretty... or the chauffeur clothes are pretty universal, I don't know. But, jeez. Uh, this is a long film, you know. Uh, yeah. They arrive at the base. And there's also the line in the car. I'm scared, James. I get this Dr. No vibes from this because Honey Ryder says that in the elevator. Me too. My my hands are sweaty too. All that jazz.
0: Yeah, Friend- so- something that most definitely give you give, gives you Dr. No vibes is <sighs> goddamn Blofeld himself.
1: Uh, yeah. But there's also this friendly invite for dinners and a uh, dinner and drinks at four, just like in Dr. No. Like... <laughs> We give you these nice hotel rooms, and the servants are all smiles. And here you are, and the dinner is at whatever time, and and uh, splendid. We'll be joining. And here Bond says, also tell him he won't be, we won't be late. Wonderful. <laughs> okay. And they have their very own clean rooms, and Doctor No is all over this. Pictures from the pasts past have been delivered to these hotel rooms. What is this? Like, what is what is this? So, but this stays in the train ready to kill James Bond. Now, does Dr. No, I mean Oberhauser, know that uh, Batista is there out to kill them? Or is it planned in such a way that if Botista happens to fail this particular mission th- in the train, then Dr. No will go like to all of these hotel rooms and put these personal reference photographs there to intimidate I, I, them.
0: I, 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 I'm i guessing that Botista is, just, you know, a rogue operative who... Belongs to Blofeld's organization, but, but Blofeld never actually knows what the hell Bautista is doing. Like that would also explain the Spectre secret meeting thing earlier. Like, like <laughs> Blofeld is there quite ready to you know give the job to that one dude? He he is just sitting there on 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 his end of the table and just being like, yeah, fine. Fine, you have the job. And all of a sudden, Bo- random Bautista just walks into the room, murders the guy, and Blofeld is just, you know, numb stuck there. Like, <laughs> but shit, that just happened. And and then, then he makes the whole clever plan of having Bond come to his hideout so that he can show his evil plan and, and the recordings and all that shit. And then he just, you know, happens to le- uh, hear that oh, shit, yeah, Bautista also appeared on the train and tried to kill Bond. And once again, he's like, oh, well, fuck. Yeah,
1: you could actually (laughs) make an argument that Hinks is completely unaffiliated with Spectre. He's just some random dude who appears there to ruin the (laughs)
0: place. Every now and then, when when the situation does not call for him, a random Hinks appears (laughs) and does something that nobody expected. Definitely. Maybe, Maybe Hinks was an MI6 planned all along. And and his plan was to actually just cause havoc in inside Spectre doing completely random things, <laughs> like just murdering a random Spectre lieutenant yeah. for shits and giggles, because that would actually, you know, you know, harpen Spectre's ability to work as an organization, because now they just once again have to find a next lieutenant to take over from the previous guy who Hinks just killed.
1: Man, this explanation makes the film much more interesting to watch. Okay, so there's more of this Dr. No babble. Champagne? Maybe later. This is like Bond has learned something from the drugged coffee in Dr. No, I take it. After which they go to the meteorite room and Oberhauser seems to have ran out of electricity because there is not much light there available. Empty echoey room. With, with few points of impressive interest. Doctor, no, doctor, no, doctor, no. And then this voice from the middle of the darkness, which is, which, <laughs> which is, touch it. You can touch it if you want.
2: <laughs> what?
1: <laughs> I'm pretty sure Bond didn't travel all this way to be joined in some Oberhauser darkroom party or something. Like, and it, what meteorite? Because, because, This can't be some meteorite, really. He's making the reference that this is the meteorite that created the crater where they are now standing. Except it's impossible. So the the villain's place is supposed to be a meteorite crater, and the, the piece of crater in the room, this is in actual fact something that they shot in an erosional crater, because a meteorite impact cannot create a crater with this kind of dimensions we found in the flick lab. The depth-to-diameter ratio in Oberhauser's lair is about 1 to 2, when in fact the meteor craters are about 1 to 5. Uh, Oberhauser continues about the Gartenhof meteorite, which would have been building it, but it cannot be this meteorite because uh, the oldest meteorites on Earth are not looking like this, as he proposes. Iron meteorites, like the one in the room, with some kind of, as they call, clipped formations... These are not possible because uh, these yeah. these are some remnants from uh, some old planet, possibly, and the, the meteorite has melted and recrystallized along the way. The oldest meteorites that are available on available on Earth are so called carbonaceous chondrites. So with the, yeah, and
0: and uh, like also begs the question: Why the fuck would you? Build your super secret evil base in a meteorite crater of all the goddamn locations. Because logic, once again, would suggest that you would want to hide your base into a location where nobody would ever come, so that nobody would ever see the base. And you would think that if there is a meteorite crater somewhere, some astronomers or, or other scientists might be extremely tempted to come around to see the crater and accidentally stumble on, upon your secret hideout?
1: Yeah, and I find this really not being up to par <laughs> in any way with the, the bad guys' layers of yesteryears. I mean, the the building itself, I think the architecture is nothing that special. They're in a crater, well, whoopsie-doopsie-doo. I mean, we have been in... Inside a freaking volcano in one film, you only live twice. Kind of over the top, but at least it was hidden from sight, at least when it was finished.
0: We, we we have had fucking laser battles in space stations.
1: Yeah. And what comes to mind from this base is more like Quantum of Solace base of greens in the middle of a desert. Once again.
0: Kinda, yeah. And, and the base didn't actually make that much sense there either. Like in Quantum of Solace, it was supposed to be some kind of a luxury hotel for, yeah. for, for those who have way too much money and want some isolation where they are safe from prying ice. That, that kind of, I, I can still somewhat believe. Like, if you would be super rich, super famous, maybe you would want to go in the middle of a desert to a luxury hotel for a week or two to make sure that nobody actually stumbles upon you and you are completely safe from paparazzis.
1: There was one film that I went to watch recently, the, and the, it was about drug cartels and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Gentleman's, right? It's called in English. This latest from Guy Ritchie. Okay. And they're, they're the baddest base the well where they are developing all these drugs. It's it's kind of hidden. This whole laboratory is built underground, of uh, one crate that looks very innocent, like nothing is happening. It's just one crate that you enter, and maybe you have a computer desk there and computer. That's it. I like this kind of uh, hidden places. Why can't they use this kind of a drug cartel influenced hidden bases? Maybe you have like a like a Laundry company and under that you have a huge base for your evil actions, something like that. I don't I don't think this has quite kind of happened in the entire Bond franchise.
0: Yeah, I, I would say the reason why they can't use that is because you can't have your weird, extremely choreographical Apple help desk death cult <laughs> in a great hidden base. You, you need a crater base for all those fucking hipsters. <laughs> because that's precisely what you find from the observation room of Blofeld's base, where you have all, all the all, all the technicians in in black clothes sitting in front of a computer, and then all of a sudden they all get up.
1: Yeah, that, that that is weird. I was thinking that when when the people at their desks here rise up, that this was some kind of a mark that. Maybe Blofeld has been drilling their heads as well and removed all of their memories, so they are nice little servants there. And there. Well,
0: well, could, could be. That's a possibility, which the film never voices out. Yeah, and... Like, the, the whole, whole scene is completely goddamn random.
1: Not many things make sense at all. Then there is the quote, he's a visionary like me, referring to C. Visionaries. Psychiatric words are full of them says Bond. Again, it's a Dr. No reference that they have at the table when uh, yeah, Dr. No and Bond are having this little discussion.
0: Yeah, and uh, apparently also No Time to Die is going to pull off similar type of situation.
1: Oh yeah. At least
0: going on by the trailers.
1: Yeah. History isn't kind to men who play God.
0: Yeah. And it's, once again, it's a similar type of situation. Bond is facing the main bad guy, I'm guessing. In a large ass room, which I'm guessing is in bad guy's secret base. Yeah, and
1: Bond is under ice like in Skyfall. I like this quote. It was all me, James. It's always been me, the author of all your pain. I actually forgot that I've been using this, the author of all your pain, in some previous episodes. I didn't remember that it was coming from this film. And apparently so, it's pretty cool.
0: I really hated it. I hated the entire plot point.
1: I hate the plot point, yes, yes.
0: And I, I, I couldn't stand the quote either. I, I, I remember when I, was, when I was seeing this in theaters, and this moment came up, and at that point I was actually trying to choke myself with popcorn. <laughs> I, I just kept, you know, stuffing it into my mouth and not even chewing it properly, just swallowing it. Gulping some soda after it, so that the soda mixed with the popcorn it got stuck in my throat.
1: <laughs> and still, you're <laughs> praying there. That, please, please don't make any family connections with Bond and Bluffal. Please, please.
0: Yeah, I, I, I don't know what actually was going on in my head at that moment, if anything. But I'm, I'm kind of coming to believe that that was some kind of a subconscious. <laughs> safety, safety, sa- save yourself through death Reaction to the stupidity of it all
1: Ugh. And this whole character of Blofeld I-, I don't understand this whole smirking thing Smirking guy who doesn't seem to take the, his business very seriously Just compare this Blofeld to Well, it's different world altogether But compare this to Donald Pleasant's performance as, uh, as Blofeld Who is this weakling here? There isn't like iota of menace in the Christoph Waltz's Blofeld?
0: No, uh, Christoph Waltz. Like his his location, his gadgets, his base, everything just keeps giving me Steve Jobs vibes for some <laughs> some odd reason. Maybe it's that that this blowfield is all about technology and and sharing and stealing information and all these. These large white rooms where there is nothing in them. But I, I, I don't know. I, I just, you know, I, I, I just, like when I said that, that Blofeld has an Apple help desk death cult. <laughs> this is besides the reason why I said it. Because because Apple and Steve Jobs are like the first things that comes to my mind wow. when, when I see Walter's Blofeld.
1: I really didn't like this costume design either. This. This this jacket is pretty weird.
0: Yeah, it, it, I I mean, isn't this once again supposed to be something that, some clothing that is supposed to hint back to Dr. No?
1: Mm-hmm. What is with this Dr. No references or what is with this Diamonds Are Forever references? Because like Diana Day did for some unknown reason, because of celebration.
0: Yes. this is this is this is kind of this feels like a film that you it wouldn't be good, but you would be more able to understand if this would have been the celebration film instead of Skyfall. Yeah. But this ain't. Like I, I'm I'm not entirely sure. Is the situation that this got written before Skyfall? Like like they they first had this script and they just couldn't make the film work. And during the time that they were thinking, like, how, how can we salvage this? Somebody wrote Skyfall, which was a better script. So Sam Mendes decided, agreed to direct that film. So they were stuck with this one. And when, when it came to time to make the next Bond film, nobody had written a new script. So it's it's then that they just, you know, once again, dig up Spectre's script and choose that well, this is the film we are going to make now.
1: That's one theory of many. Bond says nothing gonna be as painful as listening to you talk. Kinda of this uh, masculinity show off kind of like in the sh le chiffre ball tickling interrogation. But then it goes to the grinding and well Oberhauser now has explained that <sighs> Oberhauser's father adopted Bond and taught him to ski, climb and hunt and what this essentially seems to Communicate to the audience is that Oberhauser is now jealous of the connection that the two, his father and Bond, have shared in the past. Like what
0: Well, well but, that's what it is. But like that that's that that's the entire case. And the film never actually makes it so that Oberhauser's father would have loved Bond more than him. It's yeah. just that, that his dad showed affection towards Bond also. So the, the entire thing the, the Blofeld's entire motivation for creating an overpowerful global terror network that can control nations topple governments and, and at, at whim is behind Bond's entire life. The, the, the motivation behind all of that is just the fact that Daddy showed affection also to Bond.
1: Yeah, yeah he, he makes the reference that um, it's like a kind of a cuckoo's nest right where you're just supposed to push the foreign intruder out of the nest because that's what you do so that's kind of also giving the indication that Oberhauser is doing it just because and so no, no particular you know tension would be going on between the characters which would make sense in the way that you know Oberhauser has been doing his thing throughout Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall. And so he's, he has been just letting James Bond to do his business. Why didn't they have like their meeting earlier if he was so interested in doing his uh, revenge on Bond? Yeah, just because, but that doesn't also make any sense if he's just doing it just because he was in the right wrong place at the wrong time or in the wrong place, quite simply. Because then this continues to the MI6 building and Oberhauser is still playing these personal games. He's going to the shooting rage and putting all these little A4 papers and putting the faces of all the loved ones from his life or the villains from his life, the people that, that affected him in some way, trying to fuck up with James Bond's head. Why to go through all that trouble then if you're not having some kind of a vengeance in mind?
0: Yeah. Uh, but like, like, like th- th- This uh, is the lamest Paul Ofeld that we have had in this entire series. Most definitely.
1: And this relationship is of no consequence to Bond himself. Like, th- there's Bond doesn't scream out in his expressions that there would be any familiarity towards this guy. No any shared stories. No nothing between them. He doesn't somehow then remember the guy at all. Or he was just so... So no consequence, just like he is as a character in this film, that he just doesn't remember somebody was so unremarkable. Sorry, Christoph Waltz, but really.
0: Yeah, I I, I kind of took like like credit that Bond actually does remember him, and he does recognize Blofeld in the in the Spectre meeting when Blofeld first ho- shows his stupid face, but Bond just doesn't give a shit.
1: Yeah. And then Swan walks to Bond after some drilling moments and says, I love you. Wow. Really? Yeah. Really? And I kind of hate this scene altogether. Why to drill into Bond's head? Now Bond has two holes in his head for the rest of the franchise forever. So thanks for this movie.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. Holes that actually don't mean or do anything. Apparently. Like, like, once again, once again, Blofeld talks a good game. He 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 says to you that those holes may mean that Bond forgets everything, or that he loses his motor He can't move and walk, walk and and talk and do anything if he would just you know drill into into the right place. Yeah, but he doesn't. But he doesn't really. I mean, after Bond escapes, there is it's barely an inconvenience to him what went. So he he runs, guns, yells, shoots, does anything that he has done previously. So the entire torture had no effect.
1: Yeah, no stakes, no consequences. And then Bond goes, on his little shooting range. It's starting to look like a video game.
0: It, It does. This is one of the easiest escapes that Bond has had. In, in in the franchise, not the easiest. There has been some more notorious ones, like when Lemony died, they were supposed to feed Bond to a was it barracudas, and Bond just uses the watch and you know mm. cuts through the handcuffs. It it's not entirely that bad, but the, this is the the, the escape from Blofeld's base is piece easy to Bond.
2: And
1: of course, this is the moment how Blofeld gets the famous scars and you just have to emulate it from the earlier movies.
0: Yeah, of course, because it's not Blofeld without the scar.
1: I think he was doing pretty fine without scars in On Her Majesty's. And, uh,
0: the, then again, then again, when it comes to Blofeld in Spectred, the scar really is the only thing Blofeld in Blofeld.
1: And we get the biggest explosion ever. Or it was the... Explosion that was filmed in Morocco here that holds the genus world record for the largest film stunt explosion in cinematic history. Uh, they used 8,000 plus liters of kerosene and 24 charges, each with a kilogram of high explosives. Boom, 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 boom.
0: And that that was not enough to kill off Bollowelt.
1: Yeah, not enough kerosene to kill off this guy. Sterile and compulsory action. <laughs> But then we get to Hildebrand, Prince, and Rarities. This is the safe house where Bond meets with M. Hildebrand Rarity is, of course, the James Bond short story from Ian Fleming from the original novels. Okay, they are there, and uh, Madeleine says goodbye. Bond doesn't seem to even pay much interest. I wish they would have just left it that way. Like, okay, Madeleine Swan walks out of the picture now. But no, she's going to be bait. To be once again used in the film as a victim to be saved.
0: Yeah, because that's kind of her her entire motive in in the film. Either she's being kidnapped or then she just hangs around with Bond.
2: Yeah,
1: Q tries to hack the system. How exactly does M escape from the car? Because it seems that he's clearly teleporting away from the scene. well he
0: is clearly teleporting from the scene
1: right the guy has maybe off screen something like three seconds to go somewhere
0: yeah and but and but then again somebody who does not teleport off the screen is is money penny who back in back in skyfall was given a sniper rifle in one scene which Mm money penny completely fucked up but that entire scene, that that scene, still meant that the entire world went went crazy over how the character had finally been fixed, and Penny was now feminist presentation, and there there was all this positive buzz around around Skyfall and how penny was th- uh, was treated there, and now all of a sudden in Spectre, the film is going over its heels to make sure that the good publicity would never happen again because Moneypenny is just quickly telegraphed out of the entire ending of the film. Like, here she sees that Bond and her boss are being hijacked and her reaction is to run away and not show up except after the situation has been handled. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so, so... could the film, please, like some like Mendes, if, if you're listening to this, can, can you please, you know, reach us on, on, on the flickr Facebook page and, and tell us why, why do you hate good press? Like, when did positive buzz become a bad thing?
1: <laughs> That's a very good point. Also, I'd like to know the C's motivations for what he's doing, because there's this quote, I made an alliance to put the power where it should be. And now you want to throw it away for the sake of, quote, democracy. Whatever the hell that is. How predictably moronic. But then isn't that what M stands for? Moron. What does then C believe in exactly and why is he pulling this plan off? We don't even know what, what is personally at stake here. What's his personal goals? I guess nothing.
0: I, I, I guess he doesn't have any.
1: Yeah, he be- doesn't believe in democracy for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, if if we are to take Blofeld on his word, she is not in Blofeld's pocket. He is not on the payroll. So this is not money and power thing. She is just a visionary. And apparently being a visionary means that you handle all the power over your own spy network to some kind of a lunatic Master criminal who has a global terror operation. Yep. Because.
1: Reasons. What
0: exactly? Because the plot told you to do that?
1: Reasons. But so, Henrik, what does C stand for? What were you thinking C would stand for? Can't. Right. That's what it is. I remember in audience waiting for it. Everybody was waiting for it. Everybody was kind of giggling. <laughs> okay, now it now it's coming. But no, it's PG thirteen, I guess. So or w- was this supposed to be some kind of a double entendre? But it's PG thirteen, so it's really cunt. But we can't use it, so it's gonna be careless. But then it's like, oh, come on, really? Yeah. See, see, just called you a moron, and now you're just gonna come up with careless? Eh. Yeah. Eh. And you have a countdown to surveillance powers. Like intriguing point, isn't it? You know, you, ha- you have two minutes. What what if they would have activated the system for two minutes? Would they then download all the intel to themselves in those two minutes? Would it be super bad?
0: I, I I'm guessing it would have been super bad. Like all the intel is downloaded in one nanosecond.
1: Right. Oh my, MI six building is in uh, pieces. It's about to be demolished kind of prematurely because Blofeld is back. No green scene on the shooting yard here. Yep. Yeah, pretty much everybody else, yep. Of anybody of anybody of consequence. So you have the you only live twice makeup for Oberhauser. Uh, yeah, yeah. Character development of Oberhauser. So still no rage from this character. Even after his face has been destroyed, nothing changes in the portrayal of the character. It's just kind of like me, me, me. Me,
2: me, me. Me, me,
1: and says, I really put you through it, haven't I? That's brothers for you. They always know which buttons to press. Ha ha. But you're not even brothers, right? Officially or on any level, really.
0: No, no. Uh, li- like step pros at best. Yeah. Okay.
1: And uh, there's the lame death of C because you can't just do anything right. The guy just falls. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, c- c- kind of a really lame-ass way to finish off your bad guy. And yeah. a- also c- kind of a hypocritical moment from M's part. Because up until this point, M has been vouching on, on you know, democracy and, and the you know, the freedom of the small peoples and everything that... And, and following the guidelines or rules. But here, in the, in the end, M, who no longer works for MI6, I'm guessing, all of a sudden breaks into a government building and assassinate a high-level government official.
1: Yeah, because Q. And,
0: Q. Oh, 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 and on top of that, kind of a fucks up fucks over every other nation who was part of the Nine Eyes program. Because I, as I understood, every other country except UK had already transferred their agency databases to to correspond with Nine Eyes.
1: Uh, there, there was a vote for this Nine Eyes and the le- legislation didn't pass because South Africa was against it. But then they hastily had another vote for it after the bombing of Cape Town. And then they agreed to do it.
0: yeah so basically every country except Britain has now made the necessary changes into their data structure into how, how their systems were to transfer those systems into nine eyes. They, they've already done that. Britain is the last country who hasn't yet transferred and now M just dresses the whole thing and shuts down Nine Eyes. Yep. Meaning meaning that all the other countries who have already, you know, taken their spy network uh, or their intelligence network and put it into the trash and transferred into Nine Eyes, all of a sudden are in a situation where they don't actually have a spy system. Like They, they don't have the information structure anymore. They, they got rid of the previous one that they had been using, and now all of a sudden Nine Eyes is dead on water. So nice going, Em. <laughs> Good job. And this comes from the dude who, who made speeches about democracy and how important a vote is.
1: <laughs> but he already has some kind of a very weak word of the mouth evidence from Swan and Bond. And I think that's about it. I guess you need only two people to, to incarcerate C. And that's what they're going with here.
0: I I guess I guess, but but once once again, M should know that that's not how democracy works. Like 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 sure 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 sure. The nine eyes was a bad thing, and it would have led into a disaster. That much is true. So in in that it makes sense that they stopped nine eyes. It makes sense that they killed C. But M. He is no longer the head of 00 program. He no longer works for MI6. He's a civilian. What M technically is doing here could count for treason.
1: And it's funny how that he is once again accepted when he comes to the bridge. And he says that Mallory from 00 section. And they're like first like, "Uh, mm, should we? Okay, we should.
0: Yeah. Yeah, like, like like why the fuck didn't the cops, you know, stop him?
1: Yeah. <laughs> and why did Bond not shoot the plane already when he's on top of the building and uh, Blofeld is enjoying looking the show from afar? He could have just shot the plane from right there if he's if he's such of a marksmanship as he will uh, prove.
0: Uh, uh, actually, it would have been more realistic to shoot the shoot the helicopter from there. Yeah. Then easier than from the, from the boat because I, I would make the case that it's impossible to make that shot like like the distance it being yeah. night time the the fact that the airflow since, since you are going after the helicopter with a boat the airflow is actually hitting back at you so it's pushing against the bullet making it you know fly a shorter distance the helicopter has a dark paintwork which makes it a nightmare to try to hit in extremely small, very specific spot on, but, on the helicopter's hull. But, 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 Henrik, it's
1: completing the character arc of James Bond that I was a horrible shooter at the beginning of the film and now I have completely <laughs> transformed myself. Oh, sorry, it's Skyfall. It's from Skyfall. <laughs>
0: it's, it's, it's Skyfall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ.
1: MI6 headquarters. My God, they're getting a lot of beating in these movies. Like in the world is not enough. There's this explosion before the boat chase happens. Now in Skyfall, it was bombed by Silva, and now in Spectre, it's completely demolished after the Silva incident.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it, the MI6 headquarters are the most hated building in the Bond franchise.
1: Yeah, and I kind of feel weird about actually a real building that I have seen also that it exists there. And now the movie is making the case that no, it doesn't exist anymore. It's funny.
0: But then again, you know, kudos for Blouvel for blowing up the building. Because that was all around kind of a good guy thing for him to do. I, I mean, the building was already bombed, so it most likely was marked for demolition the MI6 had already transferred into the new high-class building. Mm. So basically, the government would have had to demolish the old one. That would have cost a lot of money. And here, Pullover is essentially doing the whole Japan for free, saving taxpayer Mm. money, you know. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm guessing, I'm I'm getting the vibe that Pullover is the real hero of the film.
1: (laughs) The new headquarters, at least, according to one... Londoner doesn't exist in London, so funny thing. The lame fight and in the end with this uh, this whole helicopter that we were talking about. Yeah, so uh, this could have worked great in Skyfall as we discussed, but uh, here it doesn't even serve any narrative goal that he's shooting the helicopter from afar, except to it's just some ham-fisted way to finish the film. And it's really, really lame.
0: That's the way it you is. end the film. Yeah, yeah it, it it's not even a fight between yeah. the man who supposedly has been behind every bad thing that has happened in your life.
1: See, they're never getting physical with these guys, ever. No. And I was actually expecting that Blofeld would not fail, that he would actually get away with the plane, because that's kind of the Blofeld thing to do. And I think it would have served his grace a little bit better, his... That's the way he is, that you he's kind of untouchable. He always gets away. Thomas Newman putting his John Barry references once again. There's this high pipe sound or whatever it is. It's from Thunderball very much. Bond also throws the gun to the river, or that's how it seems, that, because that's a great idea. But this is to communicate to Madeleine in a masculine way that I'm coming to get you. This is the end of yeah. my
0: career. Yeah, that's how I also read the moment. Like this, this is supposed to be the moment when Bond walks out 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 of the life, and this is supposed to be the curtain call for Daniel Craig's appearance as as James Bond, which what of you, course works very well when you look at what's coming with No Time to Die. Uh,
1: what do you think about this? whole Oberhauser calling for Bond to finish it with a smirk on his face? Finish it. Why? Why Why would it be a good thing for Bond to finish him? Would it give Oberhauser the satisfaction that now he's evil? He's killing, like, a somebody who is not giving him a threat at this moment. Killing an unarmed person. I, I personally don't believe Bond would lose his sleep over shooting the author of all his pain.
0: No, I mean, th- this isn't the first time that Bond necessarily has been shooting unarmed persons.
1: Yeah, like... And he has been so inconsequential to his past, this Oberhauser, that I guess he just doesn't feel like shooting him today. I don't know. I guess somebody could have called the child services just because this just kind of could prove that father Oberhauser didn't really bring his real son into anything and all this time was spent with James Bond doing some hunting and fishing, what have you. I don't
0: know, maybe it's just Christoph Waltz going off the script and trying to get off from the franchise.
1: Oh, that could have been...
0: (laughs) That's that's my take.
1: I accept. But no, Blofeld is detained. But I I, in a way, I like it. In a way, I like it because this is kind of the end of the violence cycle and Bond really doesn't give a shit anymore. This is the end of his double-O career. So he doesn't care anymore. Just... Keep on rotting in some cell.
0: Yeah, a, a notion that you can be sure that no way comes to bite porn in the ass. Of course, in, in the future, yeah. Would Would you actually choose to to carry on th- and continue the franchise with Daniel Craig? Like, oh. if 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 Daniel Craig would do another porn film after Spectre, this decision here at the end of the film would really look really stupid.
1: Mm. No Time to Die is going to be particularly interesting because they are bringing back two characters that nobody liked, Madeline Swan and Oberhauser. And I'm, you know, notice I'm basically calling him Oberhauser all the way because I don't accept this guy really as a Blofeld. He's just Oberhauser to me. So Bond drives off with Aston Martin DB5 with modifications, with Madeline Swan.
0: Yeah, into the beautiful sunset which holds all the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo sequels.
1: And they use the same David Arnold piece of Bond music again. This is like fifth time or what? It's been used to death in these endings and throughout the Craig run. And you're kind of really relieved that this movie finally ends. And you don't really care for your hero to return after the credits start to roll. And you actually see a close-up of the gear shift as one of the last shots. Bond team is starting to kick into gear. You know, By God, man. Weren't you just hoping that the Bond would push the ejector seat button and ejector sheet the shit out of Swan and just drive <laughs> off alone into the end credits? That would have been the... That
0: it would have, it been, would have
1: been a better ending. <laughs> <Like> a, <laughs> oh, my. That would have been it. But yeah, we get Bond theme and Morocco theme from the film and special effects uh, cast and crew from Austria, Matthias Tissi-Brandhofer and all that. And uh, I don't know, man, that's uh, Spectre, favorite performance.
0: Well, you're not going to believe me when I say this, but it's actually Dave Bautista. Oh. I, I, I think he gives kind of the most exciting performance here. I, <sighs> I hated Greg, very much so. I, I like, it, it's, once again, it's hard to say. Is Greg being lazy or is everybody else being lazy and Craig is trying to build a character? But, like, the dude tastes like he doesn't give a shit. Waltz, no. to me, is just rehashing his previous roles. Leo Seardukes as Madden in Looked like she didn't wanna be here. Ralph Fiennes, as M appeared to me like he didn't give a fuck. Was just quickly cashing a paycheck. Like none of these roles actually in any way worked for me. I would say and and with Bautista, I I got the biggest kind of a, kind of a difference from him. when I compared his his performance as Hinks to you know what he was in in WWE during his wrestling days. I I actually saw some difference there at least, and you know I'm I'm willing to welcome that.
1: Yeah, that's a great choice. There isn't that many things to choose from, but I liked Ray Fiennes in this movie actually myself. I also liked uh, Naomi Harris's Money Penny. I always like Ben Wishaw. I did like Monica Bellucci. Really hard call, but Ben Wishaw gets some quite funny moments. Uh, let's go with Ben Wishaw. Favorite quote?
0: Um, to me, it would be from the clinic scene. The clinic barman remarks Here you are, sir, one proleptic digestive enzyme shake. Which I don't know what that is, but it Does sound goddamn awful and Bond remarks. Do me a favor, throw that down the toilet. Cut out the middle man. Because that's most definitely the right thing to do with that drink.
1: I kind of felt that that was quite a crude joke to come out of Bond's mouth, but I accept it's funny. For me it would be, there's a lot of funny quotes somewhere here and there, but you're a kite dancing in a hurricane, Mr. Bond. I'll go with this we skipped over favorite scene. so what's your favorite scene
0: mm, maybe mexico opening yeah like it, 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 it if nothing else when, when the scene really opens it has some nice camera work there's some nice continuous shots and during the helicopter fight there is some nice establishing shots i i do like the shots of the helicopter as as it's swinging atop of the crowd and there are these huge wide shots of the environment. Everything that happens inside the helicopter is shit, but, you know, <clears throat> the outside shots are nice.
1: Yeah, they re- re- they were rehearsing for that for a very, very long time, and-, and they then eventually did it in a moving helicopter, so good stuff. Also, I was kind of impressed by some decisions that they made that they didn't make the helicopter to be CGI. Instead, they made parts of the square... Or maybe it was the square all the time when they were flying. Uh, CGI square, because it would have been too dangerous, of course, to shoot there if the crowd would have been under them. Uh, That's also the reason. But it's cool that the centerpiece of attention, the helicopter, is real. Okay, so for me, uh, it's when Bond is crossing over the balcony and walking on the edge of the building, looking cool as fudge. And Thomas Newman is hitting this James Bond tune. Favorite kill.
0: I'm kind of a tied between Bautista being thrown out of the train or between the dude getting his eyes couched out. Essentially, all the violence in the film is is a lack There is really not that many good kills and and the action sequences are kind of underwhelming in in my opinion. So you know th- th- those are the only two standout moments. At least in the train fight, there's some nice violence. At least Daniel Craig did get injured during that, that fight when Bautista threw him on the wall. And he, he hurt himself in that. So, so fuck it. You know, be, because Daniel Craig got injured during the train car fight. I, I'm giving this one to Bautista.
2: Mm,
1: I'm gonna just go with Mr. White. <laughs> because it maybe it was the most impactful kill. It had some good avatar. In a way. But random confusing. If you were Hinks, what would you have said instead of shit?
0: I don't know. I would just, you know, stay quiet. Yeah, me too.
1: What drew you out? If that isn't clear by now?
0: Uh, The dumb ass plot. The fucking magic scanner. And me not really feeling the action in this film.
1: Yeah, unfocused script. Kind of badly balanced plot. It seems like it's not directed by someone who even understands Bond on any level. I I don't know what happened. I didn't really enjoy the background stories of Bond in Skyfall and the Home Alone shit, but this is weird. It's doing so many things wrong that it could have easily done in a different way. It's doing the opposite of what it should be doing.
0: Yeah, it it does precisely that and it also does a bunch of stuff that it wouldn't need to be doing. Yeah. Basically, all the callbacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What the hell?
1: What are we celebrating now? God damn it. What drew you in?
0: I don't know. Uh, the Day of the Dead scenes were pretty cool. Yeah, once and, again. And, and, and when when Bond, you know, is on the lake going to the Mr. White's house, that there were some good establishing shots <laughs> there. Yay. <laughs> That's about it, to be honest.
1: I have in my notes, once again that the this rooftop walking, the swaggery walk that Craig does there on the in the pre-title sequence, so basically the Mexico again and uh, but there's it's not all bad. The first part, first half of it can be pretty good. There are some truly funny lines here and there. And then I also feel a, a little uncomfortable with some of the lines that don't even seem to make sense. So yeah, but what would you change in the film? How would you improve the film in the scissors of sacrilege?
0: I'm I'm kind of a hesitant to go with the Sony producers and write a bunch of fucking emails where I whine how the script doesn't work and the third act doesn't work and we have to rewrite it. Basically, I would just scan the film.
1: Yeah, no, that's pretty much what I have also written. Like, this entire script should be reworked from the ground up, put this thing back to the shed whence it came, start over, don't do revelations from Bond's past because I really couldn't care. I mean, you have to have some character arc, but ah, uh, then there is this. Uh, there is no struggle and personal goal in the film for for our main character. This is like script writing A B C that is completely lacking here. I'm not finding the yeah, answer to this question.
0: Yeah, it it goes to it bears to remind remember that this is the script that is the salvaged the fixed product. This is the script that, that Sony representatives looked at and said that, well, no, it's good enough.
2: Yeah.
1: Unbelievable. And yeah, they could remove all the callbacks to the previous Bond films. I really just, I just want to see finally a new Bond film, not the old Bond films again, and stop the layman cliche twists and developments that everybody can already smell before it even happens. Create an interesting base for the bad guy. Maybe not like crazy volcanoes, but ah, oh come on, dessert again, really? And Hinks, I don't, I think Hinks is kind of forced, even though I like his performance, but it's badly executed. They just can't pull off these classic James Bond baddies anymore. No, no, yeah,
0: the, the character is completely pointless, and
1: yeah, and then this cuckoo stuff with Blofeld, what? Stop doing collapsing building shticks. Just stop. Stop doing it. Stop using CGI in the first five minutes. Write more original music because this is a rehash of Skyfall. And I'm not a huge fan of Thomas Newman's work, but Skyfall had really interesting bits here and there. Choose an interesting leading lady, perhaps. Don't make Bond a Superman. Stop exploding everything. Give some development time to build attraction between your main characters. Stop doing Dark Knight and this dark color correction thing, whatever it is. Take more risks with the franchise, but maybe not so much that your brain falls out. Accept Radiohead songs when you're given some. Um, fire Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. Don't let Sam Mendes direct anymore. Bond movies. Clearly the guy is, I think the guy is burned out. Make action scenes focus on action scenes instead of money, penny sex life. How about that? This movie is a bit confusing, to say the least. I think that's it.
0: That, that's, that's not that many fixes to be made, <laughs> made into the film.
1: Back to the shed, please. <laughs> Three adjectives to describe, Spect.
0: Mine would be boring, because this actually is. Mm-hmm. It's half-baked. In, in many of its ideas and it's it's completely aimless. Yeah, very good. Um,
1: misguided, asinine and rushed. But I didn't look at my watch myself when watching this film.
0: I didn't either. I'm, I'm guessing I'm building up some tolerance against all these films as I'm doing the film podcast.
1: There are some Bond movies that grow on you and I'm afraid this is just not doing it. I can't blame my brother uh, for not watching James Bond films after Casino Royale, there have been there have been some missteps on the way. But would you recommend Spectre?
0: No, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't. I, I do maintain. Um, this isn't necessarily the the worst Bond film ever made. The franchise does have some real turkeys even before. Before Spectre, but Spectre might still maybe be the most painful Bond film to to look because at times you still kind of kind of see pot- potential. I I do maintain that that the Nine Eyes plotline it did have some good ideas there. I did like the idea of personal freedoms versus security and police t- state. I always like that theme in films. So, so there, there was something that could have worked in in completely different film. And and to me, I I always liked Daniel Craig's Run with the Bond. I'm I'm one of like I'm perhaps the only person on Earth who still likes likes Quantum of Solace. enjoys the film. I do agree it's not as good as Casino Royale or or Skyfall, but I still you know like it i'm one i'm i'm a of a apologist myself mm. but so 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 kind of the, the, there was a the high point with daniel craig with with daniel craig in helm of the character i was actually I, I was certain that we have finally we have finally got gotten past the the first film is good and then it's just shit from there on onwards habit of the franchise and then spectra happens and mm. It's, it's it's so kind of an infamous film that when when I went and saw the the Star Wars Force Awakens for the first time, and I really hated that film also, I, I used to say that it's the spectre of, of Star Wars films. You're not the only and, one and
1: with that, yeah.
0: Yeah, I, and my friends remarked back that don't be so harsh on the film. <laughs> like,
1: that's basically... But like the- that, that, yeah, that that film is just doing exactly what was done before. It's kind of full of it, it callbacks. Is.
0: It is, and and none none of the new elements that it brings to the table work at all. Mm. But like like that's that's the level we are talking about when we are talking about Spectre. And I pff, like maybe maybe it's not the worst. Like like Diana another day happened also, and Bone has been on fucking moon base and God knows what. But after after Spectre, I have been unofficially done with Daniel Craig as James Bond. I've been done with Bond franchise. I know that for this podcast we are supposed to go and check out No Time to Die whenever it's get whenever it gets released. I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to go with an open mind and give the film a fair shot. But believe me when I say when I'm going to go check out the film, I'm going to go and check it out out of obligation. Because I go host a film podcast and I have a job to do. I'm really, I'm I'm not excited about the next Bourne film after Spectre. Or, or the news I've heard about the latest one, No Time to Die. I, it's actually, honest to God, it's it's from the Flicklabs Facebook page. That That's how uninterested I am with Bond franchise ever since I saw Spectre.
1: I'm kind of with you. I was really done with Bond when I went to theaters and this is coming, by the way, from a lifelong fan of the franchise. I started watching James Bond when I was six or seven and uh, it just seems that the producers of the franchise, Barbara and Michael, are not quite aware of what they're doing here and that's been kind of obvious for a long time to me. And now that you're going to bring two characters into your new film that nobody liked, it's not like you're really listening to the audience feedback here. Uh, unless, of course, you're able to do something that is not really irritating in No Time to Die. But how do you feel about this, you know, Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson? How, how 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 do you think they have managed to carry on the torch of James Bond after License to Kill, let's say? I mean, it's been with uh, variable success levels.
0: I don't know. I I I'm not as disappointed with them as as you are. Mm. L- like I said, I I do like majority of Daniel Crick's run. I'm I'm a big fan of Casino Royale. I'm a big fan of Skyfall. I do enjoy quite a bit of Quantum of Solace. So yeah. I, I'm not entirely ready to say that everything they've done is trash and they're completely worthless simply because of spectre. I I don't know who fucked up with spectre. Like like who ultimately is is to be blamed. Is it the direction? Is it is it the Barbara? Is it Michael? Is is it some asshole in in Sony? Uh, like like somebody has to be crucified. I just don't know who that person is.
1: Yeah. 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 It's an interesting topic. They seem to take a lot of risks with the franchise, but at the same time they are unwilling to let go of some old things and these callbacks, man. Okay, many layers to that. But that was Spectre pretty much, unless you have something for the complete sentence. You really know you're watching Spectre when...
0: When you are the architect of your own pain, which for me would translate last night and five bottles of wine.
1: Yeah, or alternatively you really know you're watching Spectre when you're not sure if you're watching a James Bond film or Mickey Mouse and the Cuckoo Diaries. That's about as sensible as this film. That was the James Bond run for now, ladies and gentlemen, because uh, the powers that be have decided that this uh, next film, No Time to Die, is not going to come on schedule. It has been now delayed three times. And will be released in November according to the latest information. But who knows. Stay tuned to that. Let's see how long this uh, chaos uh, persists. And whether we will solve this uh, problem only after we have some kind of a vaccination for this. Which could take up to 18 months of vaccine de- development hell. So good luck with uh, human race. But see you next time with a whole bunch of different movies. That's it. and. Uh, In the meantime, and in the between time, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. Come join us for the podcast. uh, And um, I guess we're ready to kill Bond for now. Thank you, Tom Franklin, so far for help in being our guest in these episodes. Unfortunately, it didn't work this time, but life happens, as stated. Anything to add, or are we about to throw our Oberhauser clothes to the corner?
0: I guess this is it for us.
1: Yeah. How's it been? Are you completely done with Bond for now? I'm
0: most definitely completely done.
1: Yeah. It's been a long long run, indeed. It's been running this whole Bond marathon for, what, like over six months? I think we're done. I think we're done. We were playing with the idea of of reviewing even more movies in this uh, between time here that has now been created, but... Thanks, but no thanks. I think there's a lot of movies that we can discuss outside of the Bond sphere.
0: I'm 100% with you on that one.
1: So thank you for joining us and see you next week.
0: Uh, Until then.
2: Cuckoo. Cuckoo. Cuckoo.
0: Cuckoo. Like, like, like for, for example, to take the chorus of the song. Uh, how do I live? How do I breathe when you're not here? I'm suffocating. I want to feel love, run through my blood. Tell me, is this where I give it all up? For you, I would risk it all. Which, essentially, is is kind of, kind of a like... Like a lava song thing.